Hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. This week we are talking about a classic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to go there completely, but um, a, a film from one of our favorite directors, and that would be Guillermo del Toro's 2015 Crimson Peak. A somewhat critically maligned, at least for del Toro's back catalog, um, horror film involving a, a couple of people who were super hot at the time. But we're going to revisit that film, talk a little bit about its ups and downs, and see if it is indeed a failure piece, a film that just kind of missed the mark, but maybe still worth your time. So joining me as always is... Catherine! My sister, and I, of course, am your amiable co-host, Tim. So, let's talk Del Toro, the bull. Um, and, and his... First, let's establish kind of his, his role in uh, our, our sort of filmmaking lives, our, our film appreciation lives, because uh, uh, my relationship with Del Toro goes back a super, super long way, as, as yours does as well. Um, and this may be one of the only films that we ever really get to talk about this on this podcast, since most of his stuff is quite successful. Uh, Crimson Peak is the rare sort of near miss in Del Toro's uh, very storied career at this point. Um, so, so where are you with our, our good friend, Guillermo? Um, I think everything he does is great. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm a huge, like, spoiler alert, I'm a huge, huge fan. And, and we do go way mm. back. And the first movie of his that I remember seeing and having fun watching, and please, you know, don't judge my taste. I, I was a child, was Mimic. <laughs> um, yeah. I really liked Mimic. I, I, I remember having so much fun watching that movie um you know it was it was cheesy and creepy and but it wasn't too creepy i you know i was small i don't remember being traumatized by the movie it's been a while since i've seen it i watched it a few years ago and and i still had a good time um but that was the first time i i, I was introduced to guillermo del toro and i've kind of been in love ever since he's my favorite case of hollywood resting jolly face <laughs> he is a remarkably happy dude, uh, given the both the nature of the material that he seems to love producing as a filmmaker, but also, of course, just just as a, a filmmaker in general, which I mean, we know that filmmaking is an incredibly challenging and, and complicated profession to uh, sort of mainline, but he is relentlessly jolly <laughs> and uh, and excited. I'm, I'm sure there are bad days. There must be. But- <laughs> He he doesn't share those with the public very often, uh, but yeah, Mimic was an early one for me um, as well, and and I remember being impressed with it. There were striking visuals, right? And we'll come back to that topic several times in this episode, I'm sure. But Del Toro it, at this point is probably most known for just having at least a, a few times in every film. You know, I would say two to three at minimum. There will be a a scene, a moment, a, a visual representation of something that will stick with you well after the film is over. Yeah. You know, a, an image that will just hover in your mind uh, forever to a certain extent, uh, just like uh, the uh, the pale man in Pan's Labyrinth. You know, the guy with the eyes in his hands. Just a, an image that is indelible. Right, the moment you see it, you know exactly what it is. Every single Even frame of Hellboy. <laughs> Yeah, most of Hellboy is really, really iconic. 
especially the first. I think, well, visually, I think Golden Army is is even more interesting because it leans more into that, you know, the weirder side of the Hellboy mythos. Um, but even the first one, you know, some of the monsters he fights and and some of the things that happen are just really great. And just Ron Perlman's entire design is is incredible. Um, but uh, even all the way back to to Kronos and the Devil's Backbone, great. you know, his two uh, Spanish and, and Mexican produced projects, you know, sort of prior to and then of course after some of his early Hollywood success, you know, the the Ghost Boy, in you know, huddled in the basement in uh, uh devil's backbone and and chronos you know and those were movies that i of... sought out after hellboy yeah 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 really after i i think that was kind of the same arc for me as well like you know hellboy's where i i was like okay who is this guy <laughs> the mimic uh, guy really <laughs> yeah it's like okay and then you know we just wanted to see more so you know got a hold of chronos uh we had <clears throat> you know where i was Living at the time was a college town. We had a Hastings, which was just like, you know, there was always a back wall, which is weird, not weird stuff, but like, you know, foreign films, you know, stuff that was harder to find. Things that you weren't going to find at your like local video store, you know, prior to the advent of streaming and the internet. And, and they had a copy of Kronos. And I think I was able to request that they pull in a copy of Devil's Backbone and they did. Um, you know, but yeah, it was, it was definitely one of those, oh, oh this guy is very intriguing to me. I want to find everything that I can. And, you know, the, the pieces fell into place, right? So what does Del Toro love? He loves monsters. Mm-hmm. He loves the imagery of monsters. He Fantasy. loves concepts of monsters. Um, and more importantly, making you understand them, right? Like the, I think much like David Fincher believes that we're all perverts, I think that Guillermo del Toro believes that we're all monsters. That's why on the inside we are all Frankenstein's creature, huddled in the dark, yeah. hoping to find some someone who will listen to us or understand us. Right? Well, he just I mean, like, sympathizes. Like I'll, I'll be really cheesy. I love to read interviews with with him because I love the way that he talks about filmmaking and the way that he talks about his own movies. But you incredibly know, incredibly articulate, just unreasonably so when it comes to this film. Yeah, and and he he sort of highlights that that he's making, you know, the same types of movies. He's talked about that before, that, you know, you return to the same ideas over and over again. And I think that is, that is one of the things that he keeps going back to, um, or at least for me. Like that's how James something. Cameron's been trying to tell the perfect love story since Terminator. <laughs> like, it's just, it's all he wants to do that's, is tell the perfect love why story. Why doesn't someone tell him he did? It was True Lies. Uh, yeah, True Lies was it. Midlife love. He got it right, finally. Took Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, Please let us yeah, know I, if you I, want us to talk about True Lies on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, James Cameron unfortunately has never had something that failed to be a success, um, uh, an unreasonable success at that. I mean, yeah, I guess you could talk about you know being True Lies, his worst film. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, any case, maybe maybe we could do that. Maybe we could do the the James Cameron scale of failure. Oh, this film didn't make as much money as all of his other ones, so it was obviously a failure. This was only a gentle blockbuster. Yeah, it was it was marginal. It's a marginal blockbuster for a Schwarzenegger <laughs> film in the early nineties. It was just passable. Um, but no, I I and I I I think you're dead on. Yes, he he is sort of. All of his films revolve around similar ideas. And I think much like 
an author will attempt to hone a concept across multiple books uh, or, you know, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, like Stephen King and things on this podcast too, and just, just in our lives. And Stephen King is much the same. You know, he seems to be working out similar ideas in different ways. Um, so I, I think really incredible artists, that's something that you can expect from them, right? You know, it's, it's not like Michael Bay, who just is a clean slate every time. You know, like, oh, I have different ideas that I'm working with in this film. And, and not that that's a bad thing. Um, you know, honestly, I, I kind of feel bad for Michael Bay because he's tried well, to do different things. And then he usually just gets kind of slapped down he's a, when that happens, you know. I mean, he's a jerk, so I don't feel that bad for him. But <laughs> sure, but I do. Fine. Michael Bay doesn't need our sympathy. Yeah, he has his his silk sock money and and he, he sleeps on a bed made of cash. So mm -hmm. that's fine. Um, but I I do think that people are overly harsh in their their constant critique of Michael Bay. Clearly, the guy's doing yeah. okay. He's got yeah, something can, can... figured out about movies. <laughs> let's let's switch the conversation back to where it belongs, and that of course would be Brett Ratner. <laughs> he's been he's been run out of Hollywood for all of his his horrific the horrific literal that he's worst. Done. Yeah, let's we can we can just admit that uh, Michael Bay's fine. He does what he does, and he's very good at what he does. But he's no Brett Ratner. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I, I think it's it's really cool that you can see those threads through Del Toro's career, right? It, in some ways, it's the same fingerprint that makes you fall in love with an author, right? The thing that you go to their work and you can always find. Right. Those are the, the things that I think make a person a, a lifelong reader of a particular author, whether that's, you know, someone devoid of ideas like James Patterson or or, you know, it, there's something about their idea. work. Some, yeah, <laughs> the one. I mean, yeah, he's got to have something to do out on that one of his many boats <laughs> in the, the Florida bays. Uh, it's it, it's it's what brings you to the table and Del Toro. I mean, this is, I don't want this to be a podcast where it's like, well, you know, you should know what you're, you're getting when you go into a movie like this. But with Del Toro at this point, you should kind of know what you're getting, right? Because he's, he's very reliable in what he plans to provide you with on screen. Um, I, we probably won't, I guess we could maybe at some point talk about Pacific Rim and, and we may in this episode too, um, but that movie is very much my jam. I I love it unreasonably. Mostly, I mean, it's it's giant robots punching things, which is always fun. Uh, from you know Neon Genesis Evangelion all the way down to Gundam to whatever. Like I just I love it. It's great. It's a wonderful time. But even in that film, you know, it's it's a Del Toro film, and and you can tell. Uh, apart from the fact that it seemed like from like 2010 to 2020. It's just he just was in love with Charlie Hunnam. He just had to just had to have Charlie Hunnam and everything. Well, uh, he's in this too. Yeah, uh, and that's okay. You know, it's fine. Every every director, Del Toro also seems the kind of guy that I think rather than pick a person who has like acting ability, um, I think he just likes working with people that he likes working with. He'd rather have somebody on set that he he enjoys working with than maybe hire the best person for the job. And, and I respect that too. Cause again, making movies guys, it's real hard. Like it's a huge pain in the ass from top to bottom. There's a lot of decisions and, that uh, have to be made. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and if one decision you can make is like, you know, Charlie's, I, I like Charlie a lot and we we're going to need him for these uh, kind of key moments and not much else. Let's just get him in here instead of, you know, he's not bad in this movie. That's... I mean, he could be worse, he's not. but he's also not really in it. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, he's a side character at best, but so needless to say, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Like del Toro is this wonderful filmmaker who has a, a lane that he enjoys working in and he has found a way to make that work for him over and over again. And, and Crimson Peak is a bit of a diversion in a couple of ways, but it still has that heartbeat. It has that del Toro pulse running through it. That's really undeniable. And I think it gives it a, a unique quality. Uh, it's also a ghost story, which there are, Apart from like the the Netflix dreck, right? Like the just the constant like, oh, here's a house and and oh, there's a ghost in it, and and you know we've got one CG model that's gonna like press up against the wallpaper kind of movie. Um, it's really good to see a ghost story told at a high level. Yeah, right. Sort of the the same thing with uh, you know Haunting at Hill House, which we talked about extensively, but. When you see a ghost story executed well, it's it's kind of thrilling because it just doesn't happen that much anymore. You know, we've we've been in the the realm of, of slasher and demon and torture horror for so long that it's nice to get that little oh you can you can get horror out of other things. Yeah, it's nice. Um, I think that Guillermo del Toro makes my favorite types of of horror films in a lot of ways because they are a little bit risky. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but they're different. It's something you haven't seen before. Whatever in it that is scary, it's gonna scare you in a way that you've never been scared. I can I can promise you that. <laughs> That's the other thing that I don't think Del Toro gets a lot of credit for. Is very at least I mean in thinking back through his career, he is never one to ride a trend. Right. Like a lot of directors and writers, especially people who have, you know, well oiled production machines that they can spin into existence, they'll see something in culture and they'll go like, oh, this is really popular right now. I'm going to do my take on that. And and that works. I mean, obviously, that makes it very easy to sell to a studio because you can walk in and say like, yo, everybody, ghosts are hot. I'm Guillermo del Toro. I'm going to do my Guillermo del Toro ghost movie. And everybody's like, oh, my God, we're going to make so much money. Right. Like um, del Toro precedes the curve. Right. He comes in and he does his thing and then he establishes a curve where everybody's like, oh. We need to do one of those. Yeah. And and that for me is what makes him really exciting. That's what makes it the release of a del Toro movie. So interesting. Um, Cause we talked about this a little bit before we got started, but Hellboy, you know, when Hellboy came out, like superhero movies were in a rough place to say the least. Right. I mean, we've talked about a lot of those movies, but, but superhero flicks were, were not good. They did right? not I mean, know is... how to be both lighthearted and serious at the same time. Like this was long right. before we had Captain America, Iron Man. No one knew how to tell that story yet. And I, and Hellboy had to do it first. Um, yeah. And, 
and Del Toro got the benefit of being able to cut his teeth on on arguably the only other sort of successful superhero film at the time, which was Blade Two. Um, which I did not love Blade Two when it came out. I will admit, I, I, I was Blade not a huge II. fan. <laughs> I, I mostly I just I had issues with the fact that it, it sort of spun the vampire stuff in its own way. Like it went it's a completely different direction with that, and it was fine. And in watching it in subsequent, you know, I, I've come back to it many times, and once you understand that it's it's actually still a del Toro movie more than it's a blade movie. It's much more satisfying to watch, especially once you know that del Toro did the strain, which is basically just take the vampires from blade Two, And you know, the, like that whole concept of the, the reaver or whatever they called them. And then just, you know, actually try and tell a vampire story with those kinds of vampires. You can see that it was mostly just del Toro working out his own take on, you know, what would a super vampire be? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, he, you know, Del Toro, I basically I say all that to say that Del Toro has actually been far more formative on what we consider the superhero genre than I think he gets credit for. Um, you know, obviously Iron Man was the atom bomb that blew up the MCU and let everything get started. But but Hellboy the, is the best know. comic book movie. <laughs> Fight me. Fight me on Twitter right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, he he really did carve out a, a very good little spot in the superhero universe where as you said it's 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 got solid action it's got great performances it's got a, a good amount of humor that's delivered well and is is honest right it's not just uh, i guess there's a little bit with the uh, the male fbi character was it rupert or whatever his name was mm-hmm. who's brought in he's got a couple of goofy one-liners you know where he's like whoa you know doing that things but but it's it's a film with a lot of soul and and that's what superhero movies were lacking in most cases at the time they had lots of flash uh lots of action you know things like that but they didn't have heart right they didn't have something that you would grab onto and actually you know like feel no emotional core and and hellboy did that Mm -hmm. um and and that is is you know, one of the things that will probably be sort of indelibly marked in, in Del Toro's career. So, you know, he has contributed to this this rise in the genre film. And and if anything, I think if Del Toro had never found the had never found the critical success that he's found, you know, like it really pan I think Pan's Labyrinth shifted his career tremendously into these prestige or at least what people see as these prestige sort of Academy Award films, right? Even though that's not <laughs> that really makes what me he's laugh. interested in I don't, making. I don't really get that. I don't know. I've never... I absolutely think that he should receive awards, but he's one of those filmmakers where when he gets one, I'm like, oh, uh, yay. Yeah, cool. Because I don't... you, Del Toro. I don't, I don't see him as one of those directors who's who's out there for awards. There are some who who just genuinely that those are the kinds of films that they end up making, but mm-hmm. somehow he gets lumped in with them. And I don't know why. Well, I think yeah. because he's I, friends with two directors it, who, exactly. who yeah, do that. I, I mean, yeah. he's, you know, when you're buddies with Alfonso Cuaron and uh, Pedro Almodovar, you're, you're going to get that and kind of attention. And aren't they friends too? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah Inuritu's in that, that group. So it's like, I get it, but I, I don't, really want him to make I don't really want Del Toro to make a children of men. I don't want I don't need that. 
I like I, it. I don't think he will. Yeah. I, I really don't. I like he, it when he makes big fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the other piece that we had talked about in advance that I guess we'll hit before we really, you know, get into Crimson Peak proper is that all of Del Toro's films are fantasy films. All of them. Right. Like Del Toro just keeps making fantasy films. And with Crimson Peak specifically, I, I guess I can briefly mention, you know, the quote unquote failure. It was not a box office smash. It made a little bit of money um, in, in terms of its American take, which at the time was all people cared about. Now, I think if it came out and got the money that it got then, now uh, people would consider it a smash success, right? Yeah. Uh, mostly because, you know, theaters are a giant dumpster fire right now. But but that seems to be Del Toro's thing. Like, he makes the big robot monster movie. It does fine, but not well enough for anybody to get super excited about. But then a bunch of other people come along and they make their own big you know, monster movies and then they do better. And people are like, oh. Why couldn't this have been, you know, Del Toro? But um, I, I think ultimately he he gets unfairly maligned because people want a film out of him, and he is just repeatedly telling them, you know, it's like that old thing, like when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. Like Del Toro has told us over and over again who he is. And critics refuse to believe that that's who he is. They still see him as something else. And so when he doesn't meet that something else expectation, most critics get mad. They're like, why didn't he give me this deep intellectual drama about two people reconciling differences that I was expecting? That's it's like, not that's what he not what does. he does. <laughs> he never has, right? Like, you know... It, I guess Pan's Labyrinth is the, the best one to talk about in terms of, you know, the shift in his career. Because he's always made movies about monsters. He's always made movies about fragile people touching that world. People who themselves are outsiders. Monsters with, you know, the regular face. You know, dipping their toes into that world and, and finding something. And maybe that thing hurts them. Maybe that thing's bad. But it still changes them in a positive way or, or gives them something. So the little girl in Pan's Labyrinth is the sort of you know nice microcosm of this. She's innocent, but yet she's very separate from the world that she lives in. She gets pulled by the pan into this fantasy world. She goes on these adventures, and then she's radically changed by them. And in some ways made better, in other ways not. But that movie, because it's layered with all, it, it's fantasy that's layered with reality, because it is set during the Spanish, the, the fascist regimes in Spain and, and the horrible things that they did to the people at that time. Like it, it has that grounding, but yet it has the fantasy on top of it. I guess people forgot that it was a fantasy movie and saw it as a war drama first, when in reality it's a fantasy movie first and the war drama is the trapping on top of it. And so people just need to give Del Toro that space and understand what that is. And I think that's what happened with Crimson Peak is people expected the war drama and they got the fantasy film about the girl who sees ghosts. And it's, it's, it's just sort of interesting to see those critical reactions. Shape of Water, I think, was another one that sort of came together, even though that, too, is a fantasy film. I mean, there's a scene in that movie where a, a bathroom fills up with water completely and they swim inside of it. And, and people were like, oh, this is so realistic. <laughs> is it? Is it? Um, I, I, mm, I'm not sure. Uh, it's, it's grounded in 
communism and and you know the sort of cold war right like there's i guess there's that life to I it i mean but... well it's just you know it's it's the problem of trying to explain a fantasy movie in non-fantastic terms like it's just not it's not able to be done easily like you have to immediately talk about metaphors and what a film might be trying to say about something and it's just i don't want to talk about those those are hard metaphors are complicated Yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm definitely with you, but so that that disconnect, I guess, is is sort of where we need to um, where we need to break down the you know, Crimson Peak because it definitely happens here, and I'm not going to say Crimson Peak is a perfect film because it is not, um, but it it certainly is one that uh, offers a bunch of interesting a bunch of interesting ideas. Uh, so it's Rotten Tomatoes score uh, is sitting right now at about a 72% for the critic reviews and a 55% for um, its audience score with a decent number of ratings uh, on both. So that's that's sort of where it's sitting right now. So it's still considered a fresh film, although it's right on that line. Um, it, it is one of the lower rated recent Del Toro's. Although I don't know if it is the lowest, I can check that. But it's a uh, it it did not do super super well. Um, the box office was was again about it made about twenty million dollars more than its budget, which it was fairly mild in terms of its budget, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's about fifty million dollars, uh, which this you know it's kind of shocking given how sort of sumptuous visually this film actually is. Yeah, this is a beautiful um, movie. Whether yeah. you like how this movie plays out in terms of its plot or its characters is sort of irrelevant to the fact that it's just objectively beautiful to look at. Right, he wanted to build the big creepy mansion. That's what he wanted to do. This is an excuse to do that. You know, just like. Cameron wanted to to go down and film the Titanic under the ocean. You know, this is you know, Guillermo del Toro's excuse to build his his ideal version of a gothic mansion. You know, I mean, there's a hole in the roof that it snows through. I mean, like, come on. Uh, but it made about seventy five million, so definitely not enough to to you know pull back budget plus marketing, but um, not a, a dismal you know blowout failure either. And that's true of a lot of of you know, sort of recent Del Toro. It's like, these are not huge successes, but they're successful enough that, you know, he doesn't go to Hollywood jail for a couple of years while people work it out kind of thing. Um, so sort of a, a middling response from critics, but I, I'm more shocked by the lower audience score. So people did not respond super well to this. Um, we were doing, you know, when I was still teaching, uh, we did a, <clears throat> a sort of gothic horror unit. And all I did was show some of my students the trailer from this. I didn't show them the whole thing because, you know. You don't want to get fired. <laughs> yeah. Probably, hmm, ah. uh, but uh, but the trailer itself is is enough to sort of evoke the period, right? The home, the, the ghosts themselves, everything kind of just plays nicely. 
And, and even in that people were, were instantly sort of, they instantly responded to it. It was like, Oh, Oh wow. Like it's so sumptuous. Right. But people definitely are not, didn't respond to this film super well. I remember even when it came out, having conversations with people who'd seen it at the time and it was very divided, right? It was like, either you really enjoyed it or you hated it. Um, and I think there are some, some reasons for that. So um, I guess we're going to go ahead and get into Crimson Peak. Uh, again, this was a film that came out in 2015. It was actually a script that he sold uh, right around the time of Pan's Labyrinth, like 2006. And then just never the schedule, the schedules never worked out. He worked on The Hobbit, mm. um, which that's the other sort of big question mark in Del Toro's career. Um, probably. He doesn't talk about it, probably because he can't, um, but he was originally going to direct two Hobbit films, not three, but two. Two, because it should have been at most two. At most two. <laughs> uh, and, at best and one. <laughs> at best one. That Really, one is probably good. It's uh, a children's story. Come on. <laughs> I mean, Ralph Bakshi figured out how to do it in 1970. Jesus. I, I don't see why we couldn't now, but. But so he he was, I don't think people realize how deep he was into doing that. Like he was, they were ready to film. Like the movie was prepped. It was, pre-production was done. And they were ready to go. And then basically studio infighting between MGM and New Line blew everything up. Because the rights to The Hobbit are owned by a different set of people than the people who own the rights to The Lord of the Rings. They're, yeah. they're separate entities. Um, you wouldn't think so, but they are. Well, that's the way publishing and movie optioning worked when mm-hmm. those things took place. You know, the, those books are so old. <laughs> you know, yeah. adapting and, them is a challenge. Just and in- the Hobbit was the more it was the one that had more interest because yeah. it from a scaling standpoint, you could actually pull it off. Mm-hmm. Making Lord of the Rings in 1990 would have been next to impossible. You needed another decade of film technology. Well, and and the studios just wanted that success again. And that's Mm -hmm. not what The Hobbit should have been. The Hobbit is not The Lord of the Rings. And don't get me started on The Lord of the Rings. That's a separate podcast that we we can definitely start. We can do a whole other podcast about about that. But so um, by all accounts, the, the unraveling of that project sort of broke Del Toro's heart. Um, It sucked. It broke my heart. He had invested years of his life in that project to basically see it come to nothing and then just see Peter Jackson step in and and Peter Jackson all over everything that he had planned to do. Which, you know, Peter Jackson also didn't have a good time doing that either, because if you ask him, he would have liked Guillermo del Toro to make the movies. No, he did not. want He was basically big. He was forced into it by the studio. No one got what they wanted. That's what sucks Mm -hmm. about The Hobbit. Everybody lost. <laughs> Everybody lost, and there are there are myriad stories on the internet that you can go find. Uh, one of the the Hobbit, the, the guy that played Balin, have you ever seen that? Um, I think it was Lindsay Ellis actually went to to like do her for her big Hobbit video breakdown. She met with him, and he talked about just it was a mess. Right, he like. They would show up on set, they'd get in costume, and they wouldn't do anything, right? Like, they would have them ready to go. They'd be sitting on set waiting to do scenes. 
they would sit there for 10, 12 hours in costume doing nothing. Nice. And then they would go home. Nice. And, and, and then Peter Jackson would send them a bottle of wine saying, hey, I'm sorry. You know, and that would happen for weeks at a time because he didn't he didn't prep that movie. Guillermo del Toro prepped that movie. He didn't. So he was basically redoing the whole thing simultaneously, which you can absolutely tell. Um, and but if, yeah, so I mean, as a filmmaker, if I had that experience, if if it didn't make me want to stop making movies entirely, I would never make a big budget movie like that ever again. I would and, just say no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and basically we. We haven't seen anything out of Peter Jackson since because I think it kind of broke him. And Guillermo del Toro makes much smaller pictures. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just that's just what happens. Yeah, even Shape of Water. Um, I mean, Shape of Water had like a $20 million budget, maybe. And the you production know, like just, scale is just kept really small. Like just the the size of the you know filmmaking endeavor is just kept really small. And that's how I would want it, I guess. Of course, yeah, no I mean, one's Pacific, asking me. <laughs> Pacific Rim is really his last big swing. I mean, that was you know 180 ish million uh, for that, mostly in special effects and visual effects. Um, and and that was kind of his last last big swing. Since then, he's made these much smaller. He's kind of gone down in scale because he's realized, as most excellent directors do, that the less money you take, the more freedom you have to do what you want. Yeah. And at this point, Del Toro is is more interested in doing what he wants than he is. And I think scale. I think for Crimson Peak, people were surprised that this was what he wanted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> man, yeah. we thought you would want something else, man. Yeah, dude, where's all the explosions? <laughs> this movie's kind of weird. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so we're going to uh, spoil uh, the ever-loving bejesus out of Crimson Peak. So if you are interested in checking it out, I will say that as of June, late June uh, 2021, it is newly available to stream on Netflix, uh, which it has not been before. Actually, a chunk of, of Del Toro's films got added to Netflix, which is kind of cool. Um, and, and if you do have an interest in what we would generally refer to as gothic horror, right? Big mansions, ghosts women in peril if, if that's your thing or if you're watching loki and you're just like i gotta get me up in this tom hiddleston i gotta see I more need, i need more hiddleston in my life and you will then see more you will hiddleston. get all of tom hiddleston I... <laughs> in crimson peak um like high-rise levels of tom hiddleston jeez i've seen enough um, tom hiddleston to last a lifetime <laughs> Do you need more Loki? Uh, no. It, which, you know, this film was was absolutely marketed on the back of Tom Hiddleston's breakout success as Loki in the Avengers. This was, was right around that time when he was uh, being lauded as, as the first truly good you know, superhero villain, which was what the first phase of the Marvel films, that's what they were all maligned for, was that the villains all sucked, uh, which they did. I'm not going to argue that point. Ironmonger? Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, whatever. Uh, whiplash? Yeah. <laughs> you go, Mickey Ford. Go. That was weird. Um, that was uh, just so, weird. It was a weird choice. Oh, my God. So, Why'd that happen? Where, where is my bird? <laughs> what? Okay. Uh, anyway. He, he, you know, brought life to Marvel villains. And then, of course, got completely, you know, superseded by... Uh, a giant purple Josh Brolin, but 
Oh, that's what Josh Brolin does to you with his it's, acting you know, chops. That's, Bringing his yes. gravitas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, if only we'd gotten that iconic scene of Thanos riding a tiny girl's bike <laughs> on a long hill in the Pacific Northwest. I love that's Josh Brolin's journey for. in Hollywood. I love it. I love something. it so much because I, I had the biggest crush on him brand in the goonies and it's like you go josh brolin you rule you made it you did it (laughs) um yeah but so you know hiddleston is is great uh so we are we're going to talk extensively about crimson peak um our our trilogy or our our, you know triplet of the main character set we have mia Vashikovska. is that how you pronounce her last name uh yeah um is it not Wiakowski? Uh, Wiakowski? <laughs> Wasikowska. Uh, uh, like, I love to hear people butcher these names, but, yeah, but yes, according to the internet, it's I was watching some interviews and, and it was funny watching just, you know, it was like the press interviews for, I don't know, Alice Through the Looking Glass or something and just just watching people <laughs> just repeatedly butcher her name. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to say it, so I get it, but whew. I'm here with Mia. Uh, Mia, Mia from Crimson Peak. <laughs> uh, um, Mia Bushikovska, uh, Jessica Chastain, and Tom Hiddleston, uh, along with uh, Jim Beaver. Uh, man, it's nice to see Jim Beaver and stuff. Uh, most people will know Jim Beaver. She, he plays uh, Bushikovska's father um, in this. But he is, is most known for his role on Supernatural as their kind of, you know, fixer guy behind the scenes uh which do you know how many seasons that show ran for were you following that at all um every once in a while like i don't i don't really watch a lot of television shows i don't know if you guys have picked up on that uh (laughs) but i don't i don't watch a ton of tv shows and every once in a while i would just check in to find out like whatever happened with that show and i would find out it was still on the air like er 15 years like, yeah, why is it still on? Seasons. insane. I mean, good for them. Good for them. But I can't imagine yeah, they yeah. had anything new to say after like seven of those years. I mean, I tapped out after, after the fifth season because I was like, this shit's ridiculous. I think like the third time they went to hell, I was like, okay. All right, guys. We're, we're done here. Thank you very much. And then they ran it for 10 more years. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's remarkable. I mean, consider that Jensen Ackles, right? The entirety of his professional acting career has been supernatural. 15 years. I mean, in five years, if he acts for five more years, he'll have a full like 20 years of acting on one and basically just one show. Craziness. Absolutely. Crazy. Anyway, uh, so Jim Beaver's in here. Uh, just a, a solid but very slight cast. Uh, there's not a lot of people in this movie. So uh, you know, sort of keep that in mind. But uh, all right. So let's uh, get into spoilers for Crimson Peak as we discuss what makes it a potential failure piece um so overall thoughts on crimson peak i mean we'll we'll get into the the granular details but i from the marketing of this which i was very i was very hyped for this movie i was very excited i tried desperately to manage expectations for any film even from filmmakers that i love just because it's so easy to get burned (laughs) Yeah. When it comes to Hollywood. Um, and and I'll admit that I was not totally in love with the movie when I walked out. I, I didn't love it. I don't think it it ends very well, 
but it's it's not necessarily satisfying, which is an issue with some Del Toro stuff. He doesn't always wrap up those threads. But um, so where were you at after you, you saw this initially? I <clears throat> I didn't have tremendous expectations. Um, I think the way that I approach his movies is that I'm going to be entertained no matter what happens. So I tend not to read much leading up to the release of any of his movies. I just see them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went into it completely fresh and I had a really good time. I remember thinking, um, the twists, of course, if you can call it a twist, but the, the reveals in the film, they weren't particularly Mm -hmm. surprising. I didn't find, I didn't find the the film to be like a, a nonstop thrill ride. But then again, that's not really what I wanted. I came away from this thinking it was one of the most pleasing looking films I had seen of that whole year. Um, and it ended up being one of the films that, you know, when I look back on the entire year, I'm like that. I remember most of that movie because it was just so beautiful. I mean, the, the, the costumes are beautiful. The color is beautiful. The sets are beautiful. Like this movie is just it's wonderful to look at. Like, it's just, it's got all of that going for it. However, if I am honest, the story, it's like you said, it's not totally satisfying. But I don't think it, I don't know if it's really meant to be. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess we need to address genre real quick, because this technically is a gothic romance, right? There are horror elements mm-hmm. to it, um, which feel very much pinned on the back of Shirley Jackson-esque. Yes. Horror, right. I mean, this is this is a this is haunting at Hill House. I mean, that, that's that's really what this is. It's, yeah, it's the basic it's, story of that. It's got well, the not, big not Tim Burton exactly. style, you know, Victorian inspired costumes, but it's not a period piece. It's not it's not a an ancient story. It's not even a particularly believable. Took place in the past kind of story. This just feels like straight up fantasy, like most of Del Toro's films do. To yeah, I mean. And he's not hiding it, right? Yeah, I mean, like- our, our main character, Edith Cushing, you know, played by Wachowska, is is a writer or a, a, a want to be writer. And the book that she hands in to the editor in like literally the opening scene, or the second scene, I guess, is is a ghost story with romance elements, right? Like the the ghosts are a metaphor. She's trying to be a horror writer. Um, she says, uh, "The mom from the river." Isn't this? And and she says, "Oh, you know, Jane Austen died penniless." And she's like, "I'd rather be Mary Shelley." Um. So I mean, like, he's not do everything. He's laying it all out on the table within the yeah. first ten minutes. Like, this is this is one of those types of stories, right? This is what I'm trying to do, right? This is is less. I don't know, Nightmare on Elm Street, more Bram Stoker's Dracula kind of thing, um, which. I, I rewatched recently. I know this is a bit of a sidebar, but uh, I rewatched Bram Stoker's Dracula, the, the Francis Ford Coppola film from the nineties. Problematic movie. Uh, Keanu Reeves is terrible. It's going the writer to is terrible. Budapest. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen terrible things. I saw a man torn apart by a wolf in the woods. Oh God, that, that British. It's it's just like his. He's basically just doing. Uh, his his role from Much Ado About Nothing. It's that terrible accent. Um, but 
in terms of its visual representation, there there is a ton between those two these two movies that that I think are, are kind of interesting um, because you know vampire stories and ghost stories are are built upon the idea of the large empty spaces of gothic structures, right? Evil can only inhabit a space like that. And if you want to get into some parallels between those spaces and then the churches of the time and, and how you know maybe we're talking about the evil to be found within those, we could have that conversation for sure. The towering spires of, of the cathedrals also holding evil inside. I think there might have been a couple of authors who felt that way, but... Yeah. This this movie owes a lot to to that kind of film, right? It's it's. I I think this may this film was also a bit of a victim of modern horror film marketing. Um, you know, when you market a horror film now, especially a film that has spooky ghosts in it, um, you're gonna get a whole bunch of jump scares. Like basically, the trailer for this movie gives away every jump scare in this movie. Yeah, all of it's them. not a scary movie. It's just it's not. <laughs> Don't go into it thinking you're going to be scared of any of it. Just you won't. Yeah, it's it's not that kind of thing. It's it's more about atmosphere than anything else. But so like he's he's very clearly establishing this as one of these gothic romances, right? The the man in the the high tower who who is mysterious and dangerous, the the people around him who maybe are a bit mysterious on their own, and then the the ingenue who is brought into that who who seemingly has a grip on the world but is about to have that grip shattered. I mean, that's that's the architecture of the story. And he is very much playing within that tradition specifically. Right. He's not stumbling across it. He's not like, oh, I've got an idea. He's like, no, this is the genre. And then I'm going to take that and I'm going to inject the things that I think would elevate it to a more modern sensibility. Right. That's that's what Del Toro is doing here. It's very purposeful because, you know, again, I think Del Toro is is loves monsters. Right. Because like the thing is, is that the ghosts are not the bad guys of this movie. They're trying to help. Yeah. Right. Like the ghosts are actually presences that, even though they they are terrifying to see, and I love the ghost designs in this. They are awesome, and they're all Doug Jones, by the way. All of them. <laughs> it's Doug I love Jones Doug in Jones. A suit. Uh, we've been over we've this. Talked, we've we talked love about him. Doug Jones. Doug Jones is in every Del Toro movie somewhere, and this one he plays He's all the of the best. ghosts. Or whatever filmed reference they they built to CG the ghosts out of, right? Like that's yeah, that was Doug Jones. Um, but the ghosts are not the bad guys in this movie. All of the ghosts are attempting to help our main characters survive the situation because they are all victims of what has happened before. Um, so much in in as in all of Del Toro's films, the the monster in this film, the ghosts are not the villains, right? They're the good guys. They're trying to assist. They're terrifying while they're doing it, which again is part of the point. But you know, the villain is 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 much more clearly articulated, and and aptly so. So within this gothic romance, we we open in the Victorian era, but in America. That's that's the thing that also Del Toro chose to to flip around was to not actually launch it in England when all of these, you know, the gothic romances that he's being inspired by, they're all set in Europe. In, in one place or another, because that's where this kind of architecture lives, right? Like we don't have that here. And I think Del Toro is keenly aware of that as a man who has attempted to construct his own Gothic mansion in Los Angeles, uh, which would, what does he call it? Bleak house. Is that what he calls his, his sort of like 
office slash production where he's got all of his cool yes you know, movie memorabilia <clears throat> and shit. I, I think, think so. that's what he calls it. Um, like he's he's basically built one of these because we don't have them here, right? Even in in his home country of Mexico, they have architecture that is is far older than anything that we have here, right? You know, we get a building in America that's a hundred years old, and we're like, wow, that's cool. holy shnikes, you guys! That's been, like I saw that in a listing the other day that that rolled through one of my social media feeds, and it was like this film, this house was built in 1908. Whoa, <laughs> it's like yeah. <laughs> Okay, a hundred years doesn't seem that long, but for for us it is, and and so we start in America, which I thought was an interesting choice. So our main caro, uh, character, uh, Edith Cushing, is that her last name? I think. Yes, sounds very of the time. Uh, is uh, a uh, an, I mean she's an heiress, I guess. Her father's in some kind of business and has done well, but she's attempting to sort of carve out her own space in the world and, and have a career, which is, is definitely not being expected of her. Uh, she's just supposed to marry well. She wants to be independent, do her own thing. Yeah. Um, you know, which is a streak through Gothic romance. I mean, I guess the one I'm thinking most of would be like, uh, you know, we got Wuther- you know, Wuthering Heights and, uh, oh. Victorian and Gothic literature found, you know, some, some early I dare I say feminist icons in literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see, you know, again, because not because I think del Toro is trying to make anything that's even remotely Victorian or like period Gothic, but because I think he's inspired by the authors and the filmmakers who pulled from that era, like Shirley Jackson. <clears throat> yes, that's it, it's. I just it's sort I of never, appreciation by proxy. Yeah, I just I I really really love want to harp with this movie on the fact that I don't feel like a like this should at all be considered trying to be a period piece in any way. Like that's just not it. <laughs> no, that's it's the trappings. Like you know, Del Toro it's loves costumes. his. Yeah, Del Toro loves his trappings. He wants if he wants a world that's visually interesting to play in, um, which you know, Shape of Water. Is, is you know we've talked about it already, but there's no there's no reason that movie had to be set in the 1950s. It didn't have to be, yeah. um, but he wanted to play in the visual language of 1950s. It America. gives some interesting opportunities, some interesting things that you can show people, and some some aesthetics that you can access and really saturate a film in. You know, I feel like I feel like people like Wes Anderson get away with it without mm-hmm. much attention where he has very period heavy aesthetic where you can look back and see like, Oh, I see what era this was clearly inspired by. Yes. But it's not it. So I think that's what Del Toro does more than anything. Yeah. I, I, I agree 100%. I think he's thinking of this. <laughs> so the, and, and again, I've, I've talked about the failure of marketing with this film. This film was marketed as a period horror film. Right. And it is neither of those things. It is neither yeah. a period film nor is I mean, it's a period film in that they have costumes and shit, but it's not a period film in that he was trying desperately to make like Del Toro is never going to Ang Lee himself. Yeah. Right. It's never going to happen. He's not going to wake up and be like, I'm going to make the next Pride and Prejudice remake. Right. He's, it's not going to happen. He has no interest in it whatsoever. Um, and it's it's just this is the most adequate vehicle for me to tell the story that I want to tell and to have the pl- 
places that I want to go, um, which of course is the, the eponymous Crimson Peak, right? That is the centerpiece of this film. And we take a, a surprisingly long time to get there, uh, which I think may be one of the failings of this film, is, is that the first 45 minutes is really all about the establishing of, of the characters who, and I, I'm interested in, you know, we've, we've never really talked extensively about this particular film, but I, I, I think, and you're welcome to disagree that the characters are, are pretty thin in this movie. Like yeah. there's, they're, they're archetypes, um, stereotypes from this type of their ideas story. Yeah. They're, they're not fully fleshed out. They exist to sort of be mixed together and and have them all kind of you know thrust have them all kind of thrust into the world together and and that's fine, but it given that we spend forty five minutes with them at the beginning of this movie, that thinness works against the film because they're they're all kind of one note. So our, our main cast, I suppose, is Edith, um, who is our our main character. She, again, she's the uh, daughter of a, a wealthy manufacturer of some kind. The the characters she is the, um, the daughter of a you know an American businessman of some renown, some success, which is sort of the the entry point for the Sharps. Um, and so we have Lucille and Thomas. Uh, Lucille played by Jessica Chastain in in yet another scenery chewing. <laughs> Uh, absolutely stellar performance from Jessica Chastain, in my opinion, and and Tom Hiddleston, uh, the the very very hot both physically and in terms of Hollywood debut performance, uh, Tom Hiddleston uh, as as her brother, and so the the Sharps are English, right? They are they are coming from England, uh, so they have this this <laughs> prestige about them amongst the American elite. They are you know they show up at parties. And and everything is, I guess, under the pretense of Thomas Sharp wanting to do some kind of business with her father, right? He's he's here to extend their fortunes, to to invest in business, you know, to to make money, basically. Um, but that that is pretty quickly revealed as just the the outer shell of what they're they're trying to do. What really is trying to to happen, at least what we're led to believe, is that um, Thomas Sharp is looking for a a wife, right? He's here to to collect a woman. Uh, again, a fairly stock plot for this type of story, right? The 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 girl who must be married off kind of thing. But it plays with it in some interesting ways because nobody seems especially interested in doing so, right? Which I think is is one of the small subversions that Del Toro has. Like her dad is is not in any rush to be rid of her which is, is generally the opposite of the father figures in these types of stories. Um, you know, the conversation is always about, well, when are you going to you know, get out of here? And, yeah, and instead, marry I, that brand, that instead you get the impression that, that everyone's like, Hmm, seems fast. Yeah. You know, it, which in, in my you know, limited understanding of the world, you know, we, we have this, this culturally presented idea that women of if even this time period got married like super early, like they were just getting tossed out. Not of their, really. Their mansions at 17. And it's like, no, like the marrying age in Victorian England was like 28 to 30. Right. Well, I mean, you know, people still got married when they were 18, 19 years old, but it sure. just, it wasn't 
you got married because you wanted to be with someone. That whole idea of like these these almost arranged, ridiculous, you know, spur of the moment fairy tale marriages has never really been a practical thing. Yeah, it's it just didn't. It's it's not been a thing for a while in in most Western quote unquote cultures, um, but yet we're we're told through movies and media frequently that it was right that they you know this was a, a constant thing and in this one I think it's a more accurate and if not accurate just a more sort of understandable situation where everybody's kind of like well you know you can but you don't you don't have to uh, which of course leads to to one of the major sequences of the film as as she sort of says no. Right. Like I'd, I'd rather not. And even her, I, does her dad, does he even just say, I, I would, I don't want you to like, you shouldn't. I, I kind of was trying to remember exactly how that broke down, but you know, like he's a, he's like a good supportive dad. He's not. She's not escaping anything. And therefore pressured into this new life with Hiddleston and his weird sister. You know, she chooses this because it seems more interesting and it seems like a slightly more mysterious path. And she's looking for something mysterious. She's looking for something that's going to pay off in uh, maybe inspiration for, for her career a little bit. Because otherwise, you know, these two are very off-putting and creepy. I just, from the very start, they're very <laughs> off-putting. So yeah. she has to be interested in them for the, the almost drama and weirdness of it a little bit. Or at least that's the impression that I got. Yeah, I, I don't think we're ever supposed to, maybe just in the briefest strains, right, as we're first introduced, maybe we're supposed to sort of see the Sharps as, you know, sort of desirable and interesting and, <sighs> and you know, but almost immediately it's obvious that there's something very wrong between between them and then just individually um especially with Jessica Chastain i mean she is she is carrying most of the she's carrying most of the horror in this film if if i want to put it that way but but if you if you're supposed to fear something in this movie it is her from the start Right. The moment because yeah. we're introduced to her playing piano at a party or something. Right. She's in that crazy. And she's scary. <laughs> and she, and like she finishes the piece and I was like, oh, that was lovely. Oh, what a wonderful. And she turns around. And she just has this stone cold murder expression on her face. <laughs> like, I will kill every person in this room. I will put your head in this piano and I will smash the top. of the <laughs> until you are Like it is obvious that she is, has just nothing but contempt for every person in this room. And, and it's, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. This is going to be a problem. And, and of course a lot of this, you know, so there's, I mean, again, he's, he's playing in a very particular sandbox. So there's supposed to be these, you know, sort of feints and riposts and parries where, you know, oh, the young girl goes like, oh, Mr. Sharp, I'm so interested in you. What do you like to do? And then he's like, oh, well, I think you're fascinating. And, you know, it just kind of does that back and forth. Right. And, but in this movie that culminates in him attempting to, you know, like get her hand, if you want to call it that. And then it just goes bad, right? There's that, it's that huge confrontation where he's like, you're a spoiled brat and, you know, you don't know what you want. And, or I, I don't even remember the, the full specifics of the conversation, but, but basically like, you know, her family rallies around her and is like, just kick this dude to the curb. Like, just get him out of here. Like, you know, I'm not going to do business with him. I'm not going to do anything. Just, you know, just, just let it go. And, and everybody tries desperately to, uh, to support her, right? They're not, again, nobody is thrusting her into this guy's arms intentionally. Um, 
and it's and I guess the pretense is that they've got to. Well, what we really find out eventually is that the sharps don't have money. Like they are out of money. They're not wealthy. This is all pretense, right? And they're here to to both obtain finances from one of these people, basically scam them, and 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 to get Thomas a, a wife in in, in you know, basically at the same time. And so he, I guess, announces that they've they've been falling in love. Things have been going well, and then he announces, "Well, we're just we're leaving. Right, we're out of here." And they have this huge confrontation and, you know, the father's like, ah, forget him. And, you know, the, everything seems to have sort of come to an end and are, as well, that's fine. You know, we get plenty of little scenes. There's a, a great scene where um, Jessica Chastain's character is like picking down butterfly cocoons out of a tree and, um, you know, talking about how they confer warmth and, you know, it's, it's just all creepy. Like everything's creepy that she says. <laughs> Everything Jessica Chastain does in this movie is just there are so many. You could call this movie instead of Crimson Peak. You could call this Mountain of Red Flags because yes. these people are just nothing but a red flag. Just you should red stay flags. away from them. Like if you are paying attention to the things they are saying and doing, you do not want to be friends with them. Um, so one of the things this film was maligned for by a lot of the critics that I read is that it was excessively gory, which again. I don't want to be the guy that's like, are you familiar with Guillermo del Toro's work? Like, are, I didn't are even aware? really think this was that gory of a movie. Maybe I'm it's, watching really, really <laughs> messed up movies, but I, I didn't find it that extreme. Well, I mean, this is a yeah. post Sweeney Todd, Tim Burton opening <laughs> crawl film world that we live sure, in. Sure. Um, that guy was allowed to do things with, with crappy animated blood that I don't think people should be allowed to do. Yeah, I Del Toro's films are not I I don't see them as excessive, right? The violence in Del Toro's films, however, is honest brutal. and it's brutal and it's real. And it's not um, celebrated. No, there's no glorification of the violence. Like you you may feel like that's what's happening, but it's not. Um so the, the first truly violent scene of the film comes at the really the 30 minute mark. Like we are a third into this film before anything. Not just remotely scary, but but violent at all happens. And it, it comes in the the you know bathroom death of uh, Edith's father. Uh, so, I mean, it's established that he's a wealthy man and, and you know, he has these sort of. Uh, you know, he's got a routine. And so he goes to this bathhouse to, to do his, his dailies. And, and again, I mean, if, if you're a, a, a studied horror fan, this film is very tame, right? Like there's really nothing that happens. It's very short. It's very vital, uh, very violent, very brutal. Um, but his, his head gets smashed in on a, a porcelain sink uh, and, and pretty violently. So, now, we recently talked about Army of the Dead, right? I mean, in that movie, a guy's face gets bitten off by a tiger and it's rendered in glorious high definition for your viewing pleasure. And this is nothing like that. But it is a man, you know, being sort of violently beaten into what appears to be, I mean, I know it's not, but what appears to be a porcelain sink. And it's it's bloody and it's quick. And, and, you know, we do see some, a bit of the aftermath, you know, the cracking of the skull, the collapsing of the ocular cavity, you know, there's, there's some, some realistic you know, prosthetic effects going on. 
Yeah. But it's it's just shocking, right? And it comes out yeah. of nowhere, right? It, there's a, a moment of tension and then he's dead, which is, is how Del Toro often handles his violence. He just, he it's just a part of the world, right? And, and Pan's Labyrinth is a good example. I mentioned already, you know, there's, there's a, a, a scene in Pan's Labyrinth where a man is, is beaten to death with the bottom of a bottle. And uh, it's, it's just shocking and, and repetitive. And, um, you know, Del Toro does have a tendency to sort of, I mean, like Hellboy has some moments of glorified violence. That also usually, had source material, though, that sort of yeah, commanded and, it. And he always couches it, though. Like even when Hellboy, there's that scene in, in I guess, Hellboy 2 where he, you know, blows up the, the giant plant monster. And, you know, it's this big you know, explosion of goo and he's you know flying around. And then at the end, somebody's like, you know, those things actually aren't violent at all. Like, you didn't have to do that <laughs> kind of thing. You know, it always gets sort of couched just a little bit. Um, but so, you know, in this film, this this violent death of Edith's father at the hands of a mysterious attacker leaves her alone in the world. She's, you know, there's there's still a bit of the, you know, oh, well, a girl couldn't possibly run the company. So she's a little bit on the ocean kind of thing. Like she's just like, what am I going to do? And then of course that's when the sharps swoop in and say, well, why don't you come with us? Now you can just be together and we'll, we'll take over the management of your father's company or, or whatever. And you know, it's, it's a scene that, that is necessary to propel the plot to its next phase. Cause more than likely without that occurrence, she would not have continued her relationship with the sharps at all you know she was not going to be drawn into that world but now that she's now that she doesn't have anyone else in her life she's you know perfectly poised to be you know drawn into this this web of deceit that's uh that they have have put together here um and it's you know it's it's kind of what you would expect from a, a story of this type um you know because something has to to sort of force the main character out of the the regularity of their lives and into this much less regular circumstance. So it's at that point that we move, you know, we shift scenes completely. And now we are in that sort of Gothic Europe um, as we approach the Crimson Peak, which is named so because it has what defining characteristic? <laughs> Why is it Crimson Peak? Because it's, uh, is, is it red clay? I believe so. Yes. Um, Every it's it's bloody. It looks it looks bloody. It's fabulous. It looks fabulous. It's but it's, it's such it's, a neat thing. The house is sinking into a ground that is made of all of this bloody looking red clay. It's yeah. it's great. Yeah. So it's it's you're exactly right. It's called Crimson Peak because the top of the hill that it's built on is is red clay, and when it rains later in the film, when it snows. As the snow melts, it turns red. It looks like blood. It's it's a wonderful it, yeah. visual metaphor. It's it's right? one of the things where it's like, of course, they called the movie this. Of course, the movie is centered here. Of course, this is where they were going to end up because it's it's perfect. Like everything about it is. It's it screams. I want to be iconic, and and it's. I guess that's why it's sort of surprising to me that it didn't quite get there because it's really it's a cool looking idea. Yes, like again, it feels like a, a it feels like a set in want of a movie in some yeah. cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the but I, I love the they walk into Crimson Peak. You know that she travels. They've 
they've been, you know, moving together. I think Jessica Chastain's character came home earlier, came home first so that she could prepare things. And then she doesn't really prepare things <laughs> because when because they walk she's in, scary. <laughs> we get the, the, you know, he lifts her up. He takes her across the, uh, you know, the threshold, you know, whatever. And, and as they walk in, there's a giant hole in the ceiling. Just, it's just sunlight. And there's snow drifting down. He looks down at the floorboards underneath the hole and, you know, the flooring's obviously destroyed and he pushes down into it and the, the, the clay, the red clay is wet underneath and he, it squishes out and it's just blood. Like it's just yeah. absolutely blood. And, and so it's, this is one of the things I love about Del Toro is that, you know, I think really good filmmakers are really good filmmakers because they know how to visually juxtapose ideas how to take contrasting concepts and contrasting emotions and tent and tones and just sort of mix them together in these really compelling ways. And, and that's what happens here, right? Like we have a moment of sweeping grandeur, right? Look at this home. And then we look up and it's like, Oh shit. And then we look down and it's like, Oh shit. Yeah. And like it, it's, it, it's all broken. Everything's wrong. And, and it's just, it's, it's a really beautiful moment. And I love how Tom Hiddleston just kind of plays it off. Like, Oh yeah. I mean, but, no, clearly it yeah. sucks, but you, you married me. So yeah, like, you're here now. You're not going anywhere. None of these people are going to let you leave. So uh, have, I'll talk to you later. I'll see you soon. No, hang out with my weird sister. That's right. Um, and then, you know, Del Toro loves his insect imagery. Uh, that's it's kind of his thing. And uh, she takes her hat off at the hat stand. And, and they're just dead flies everywhere, right? Just, it's, it's this really great, just death is everywhere in this place, right? If you see flies, that's a sign of death. If you see dead flies, what does that mean, right? It's almost like he's looking at it going like, yeah. hmm, okay, so flies are representative of, of, you know, something being recently dead. What if the flies that, saw, that came because of the recent- Not even death can dead? live here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just such a wonderful idea to see- played out and so she watches this this fly just like keel over and die right in front of her it's it's just such a lovely little microcosm of how del toro thinks about horror right like okay right most people would be horrific you know texas chainsaw massacre it's scary because there's flies everywhere and it's dead bodies what if the flies that were there on the dead bodies are also dead you know <laughs> just a great visual and and Again, this is not a horror film. This is if there is horror in this movie, it's creeping horror. It is the the slow march of the inevitable that is horrific. But I guess the uh, you know the the wild card that makes Edith special is that she can see spirits. Right, it has since she's a child, um, which is really where the film opens. Right, the, its opening scene is Edith as a as a young girl lying in bed, hearing noises, and then, you know, just classic del Toro shadows on the wall. You know, I mentioned the Bram Stoker, you know, connection and why I'd recently been thinking about that film as well. And, and you know, that film is, is, is famous for how it plays with, um, you know, shadows, light and shadow on the walls. And, and this film does a lot of that too. You know, so like the long fingered hands reach around the corner in the shadow and, and it's a, a woman in black warning Edith about Crimson Peak, right? Don't go there. Um, and, and structurally speaking, this film is a little interesting because it opens with narration from Edith saying, oh, if I had only listened to the ghost, you know, things might have been different. 
so we we were obviously telling a kind of frame narrative here, and then the, the opening credits are actually a book cover that says Crimson Peak on it, which I guess we're supposed to believe is the book that she writes after these experiences. Is is that the way you took that? Yes. You know, I, I think that's why it, she wants to be the horror novelist. And, and then I think we're supposed to believe that after these events, she writes them out and then that becomes her successful novel. Um, but again, everything's just kind of off. She sees a, a woman in red in the uh, mirror, um, in the mirror behind and, and follows it. And, uh, you know, this again, the ghosts aren't the bad guys in this movie. And, and so they're they don't evoke a lot of terror for me in this film. Cause I pretty much knew right away that these ghosts are no threat to Edith necessarily. Um, although I, I mess, I guess anything can. Um, but so then we get this scene in their kitchen. Um, and uh, Jessica Chastain shows up. Edith, I guess Edith brought her dog. Is that what it was? Like she has some little like lap dog thing. And, uh, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, that thing's dead. Survive here. <laughs> like, there's no chance that dog's making it out of this movie alive. Unfortunately, movies are predictable in yeah. that way. <laughs> no, that's dogs are little little balls of joy and happiness, and, and that's just not gonna that's just not gonna fly here. But I I again this this movie is production designed to the nth degree. Every every single aspect of it is bespoke and fresh. Like they did, you know, this is all constructed top to bottom. Every bit of this is is you know, set so they can do whatever they want. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say that I keep the cleanest house, right? Like our kitchen gets dirty. Of course it does with kids and, and you know, stuff. And, but their kitchen literally has red mud running down. The walls. Yeah. It's, <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's just such a great image, right? I mean, like I have seen people try to tie this, this film to the shining, which I, I, I would not necessarily do. I mean, like in, in the fact that it's a creepy location with, I don't know why we need to do that. You're going mad, you know, but the, that connection, right. The, the red mud running down the walls is, is certainly, you know, it has some connections, I guess, but really I think all of it's just in service of, it's just in service of establishing that this, this home is, is falling apart. It is being, it is literally being sort of torn apart from within, right? It's a wonderful visual metaphor for this family that she stepped into. Um, and there were, it's, it's obvious from the get go that the sharps have other plans, right? They have other designs. And, and so I guess we can go ahead and spoil the, the overarching goal of the sharps here is to wed these heiresses, right? Who are vulnerable in this case, because her father's been killed. So she still has, you know, access to all of this money get them to the home, kill them, which uh, I, I guess was, it's supposed to be poison, right? Like they're giving her arsenic or something. Isn't that the, mm -hmm. the, the mechanism? I, I don't remember exactly, yeah, it's, you know, sort of how they've they been poisoning her tea or something. Yeah. Cause we get a scene in the kitchen where they're like loading up the tea with some substance. And I, I think we're supposed to think it's arsenic because she gets sicker and sicker as the film goes on, right? Her skin gets paler and, um, you know, everything, you know, continues to, uh, you know, sort of, sort of go downhill, but yeah, like their, their basic plan is to kill her and, and then, you know, take her money and that will allow them to continue living, you know, whatever their, their 
lifestyle is for the foreseeable future. Um, then we get our, our first like major ghost sequence of the film, which I have to say this, this is incredibly well done. Um, it's not, again, it depends on your, depends on your bona fides, I guess, depends on how you how you watch your horror. If you're going to, you know, how you're going to react, but It's creepy. Don't get me wrong, but like the so the the main ghost that she interacts with in the house is is a is a red ghost, right? So the ghost she saw as a child was a black ghost. This one is is a red ghost, and he Del Toro is such a master of light and shadow that really it's it's just a scene of a hallway. It's just a hallway, and then you just see this this shadowy figure sort of popping in and out of the light. And you know we know it's Doug Jones, so it's it's oddly proportioned and and it it's he's such a he's such an unparalleled physical performer he can just do things with his body that are so striking and so remarkable and, and yet so very just, very unique to him like you can tell that yeah. it's doug jones like if you've watched enough of him it's like immediately you can recognize like ah oh, this is he's in it <laughs> yeah that's it's doug dougie's here um and so it's just this this figure sort of popping in and out of the shadow. She kind of glimpses it. She gets out of the bath. Um, and, and then it's slowly revealed to us, the audience, but she actually never, you know, sees the ghost. And it's 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 um the ghost designs in this are, are very solid. They're they're basically human forms, but they've they've had the flesh stripped off, so it's really just sort of bone and you know, some scraps of skin. But you know, the the decision to sort of have them be a single color, obviously Crimson Peak, the, the color here is red. Most of the colors are fairly muted, right? Everything in the house itself is... is it kind of has that greens. green sickly cast over yeah. everything. And so red is the only, you know, sort of vibrant color in the environment. And um, and, and so to tie the ghost to, to that color makes a, a great deal of sense thematically. Um, but the red ghost will be, you know, one of the primary ghosts that she's interacting with. But again, the ghosts are not the villains. So they're actually trying to get close enough to her to warn her that this is coming because they too have been betrayed. And so the, the relationship between Hiddleston and, and the sister, the Chastain's character is there's obviously something going on. The film is not overly overt about it like I, I think it actually rides the line pretty well like you know something is up but what exactly is up I think it actually does do a pretty good job of sort of keeping that low key until you know sort of crucial moments um, for for our purposes we can go ahead and say uh, it's an incestuous relationship right this brother I thought that that was obvious from the start yeah I given the story that they're telling and, and it's they they're very careful to point out that they the brother and sister have been alone for a, a very long time that's you know it's pretty much just been them against the world and they do a lot of that like uh implied jealousy as just Jess jessica chastain sort of hovers over you know her brother as as he's romancing her like so you get pretty much right away if you I mean if you're paying any attention at all it's it's obvious what's going on with these two <laughs> Yes, uh, you know something is up. We know that they have they have it out for, um. We know that they have it out for her in some form or fashion, but 
the extent of why and what they're trying to do is, is really what the movie unspools. And, and it's not going to take a ton of logical leaps to get to what's been going on. I guess the biggest, the biggest signifier of it is the ring. Um, so when we first meet Jessica Chastain's character, she has a, a very vibrant uh, ruby ring that she wears on her finger that is eventually given to Edith. It's given to Mia Wasikowska's character. And, and it's supposed to represent like, you know, the, the head of the sharp home or whatever. And it's obvious that, that Jessica Chastain covets the ring. She wants it back. And, and so, I mean, the, the idea is, is that, you know, she is the true you know, head of the household, even though they, they don't want her to necessarily know that, but there's, there's a lot of other hints. Um, Oh, the scene with the book, the book binding, where she shows how um, the, you know, since so much of uh, so much content was restricted at various points in, in England's history, that to get away with it, they would, you know, draw things in the book uh, on the end sheets, not the end sheets, but like the, I don't even know what that section's called, uh, like the, they would paint on basically the ends of the pages so that when you pulled the binding back, you could make like a naughty or something mm. and so the discussions of that are are pretty obvious um that that you know there's there's something sexual going on that there's a, a relationship between them here and it's uh i don't know it, it's just people talked about del toro not being restrained in this film and i, I kind of feel like for del toro it is a little bit because you can feel he wants to reveal the the juicy details, but he's kind of just letting things build in a, a sort of pretty solid way, honestly. Um, the uh, briefly, let's diverge into the costume design for this film, uh, which we've talked about the production design in general, right? The houses, the you know the the period piece components, all of that. But the 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 costuming in this movie is insane uh especially edith's clothes are just this next level victorian stuff i mean the the sleeves they put this girl in are it, out of this world <laughs> they get know, I, bigger as the movie goes on like the necks on her dresses get higher and the sleeves just get larger <laughs> it's, it's just remarkable i it i don't i don't know it it's it was something that, I mean, in a film like this, if you're going to swing this hard, why not yeah. just go for these, these iconic, you know, it, it's, it's like a, a child's rendering of what those kinds of dresses were like, right? Like if you were yeah. a 10 year old girl who was, uh, or boy, uh, who was really into fashion and you just were imagining the excesses of this kind of clothing, that's what these are, right? They're, None of it's functional. None of it's realistic. It's it's the way that we take period clothing and reinterpret it for fantasy. You know, yes. We do that all the time for fantasy literature, for fantasy video games, for fantasy films. You know, that's just part of it. And and the way that this movie approached the costume design, it was it was a real I mean, because it's it's the same star from one of his movies, I have to 
have to kind of pick on like, I, I felt like this came for Tim Burton a little bit. Like, oh, so you think you do the crazy costumes? Yeah. No, no, you don't. Yeah, Del Toro does them. He does them. <laughs> they're, they're so... I, I think in a lot of cases, it's also to show that Edith has all this life, right? That she truly is someone who is trying to live well and establish herself and 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 do incredible things and so her, these dresses are are a, an almost physical representation of her own internal joie de vivre i mean if we well, can be that it puts her that in direct contrast with the house exactly right the house is understated and kind of broken and sickly and yet here she is you know sort of trying to be a maven of fashion inside of these moments. And it's, it's just, it's very intriguing and, and really exceptionally done. The, uh, so, I mean, that's really what's, what's going on throughout this, this whole section of the film is, is we sort of get a deeper understanding of this relationship. Um, Chastain and Hiddleston's relationship is strained. Every time Hiddleston seems ready to, uh, get busy with his new wife. Uh, Jessica Chastain shows up with a, a <laughs> cup of tea and, and says, Oh, it's tea time. Let's, uh, let's murder this girl, please. And, and, you know, Hiddleston kind of holds back. And so it's, it's interesting in that there is this restraint applied to the, the sexuality of this movie. Although this movie gets very horny, very quickly uh, as it should, because most of the, most, I mean, if this truly was a gothic romance, there would be none of that, right? It would all be distant gazes along hallways and stuff. You know, that's that's where all of the romance would be. But this one is like, no, we we have to go somewhere. This there has to be some kind of you know sexual payoff for all of the the horniness that we've injected into this movie. It just ends up being, you know, not the the direction you would want it to go <laughs> 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 because it's it's uh, you know. The, the horniness in between families is what you really want. Like, yeah. You know? People wanted, people just wanted to be horny for Tom Hiddleston in this movie. Yeah. I'm and then they were sure. made, and then they were punished for it. Yeah. It's like, oh, <laughs> like, is that oh, what you want? Oh, okay. Well, what about it with That's what you sister? get. Ah! Oh, take this. Um, you know, but it, it, it does. It feels, it feels very apropos, but uh, I think this movie is at its strongest when when Edith is, is roaming the halls at night, right? Cause she keeps having stomach pains cause she's being poisoned to death <laughs> and, and she's, oh. um, and she's, she's roaming the halls and, and discovering, you know, the hidden secrets of Crimson Peak. And just these shots are so exceptional. Um, just they're lit beautifully. There's all of this, you know, Honestly, one of my first issues with Del Toro as a filmmaker, really with Blade Two, was that I felt the movie was very drab. Um, you know, there was a lot. It it was the era of everything is brown and kind of dusty in Hollywood. Uh, you know, especially action movies, and and I I didn't care for the visual look of that film and how it was presented. But Del Toro actually is at this point, I think, one of the in terms of lighting design, I think he has one of the best eyes in the business by a country Agreed. mile. Like he just, yeah. 
his colors, his contrasts, these hallways are shot just gorgeously. I mean, A, they're practical sets. So instantaneously better and, and more desirable. But if there is horror to be found in this, in this film, if there are scary moments, it's these. Like This is where they live, is, is her exploring the castle on her own or exploring the mansion on her own and, and discovering these things. So she, she wakes up the next night and, and goes out. She opens up, a, she finds like a little cubby in one of the hallways and there's a book inside. And then she is, again, one of the things, one of the greater tricks of this movie is that the ghosts aren't bad. They're, they're trying to help. So she's in the hallway and she turns around and there's, and like the, the crimson ghost, I don't think it's this, it's not the same one that we saw in the hallway earlier. It's kind of hard um, to tell. Yeah. Basically there are, there are three women who have had this happen to them inside this home. And so really there, there are three ghosts that she interacts with. Um, and and all of them are the the spirits of women that have been murdered by the sharps, and so there is uh, I, I don't remember their names, but but basically they they've done this several times. They they get married, they bring them here, they kill them, they absorb their money into their into their you know family fortune whatever, and and then they do it again when they run out of money the next time. And so these, these ghosts, it, it pops out of the floor. It, you know, it's one of the CG shots in the film, but it's nicely done. It's, it's m- mixed a little bit with some practical effects and they sort of CG'd over the top of it. Um, but it, it drives her into the elevator, which I, again, I thought was funny because if it's a ghost, I don't know what closing the elevator door would do. But she goes down into the basement and she finds it's a, a trunk. Ghost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she she finds a trunk from one of these previous women named Enola. And you know the the film continues to sort of compound at this point. That's really all it's doing is just sort of amping things up. So we find a, basically the sharps the this this red clay which apparently they've I guess they've mined it and it's it's that's been like their source of the money is providing this unique dirt that looks exactly like you know blood and guts <laughs> um he's got some kind of machinery that he's built to try and make it more efficient you know because i guess that's we can talk briefly about hiddleston i guess he's he's very good in this uh, i think he's he's actually he's doing a, a tremendous amount with a character that could be even flatter than it is um and he actually, you can see him struggling with the fact that he does legitimately care for Edith, right? That's the difference is he's actually developed some legitimate feelings for her. And the idea and the of the movie's weirdly is sympathetic so, for him. Yeah. With for that character. And he is um, the one of the perpetrators. He's a bad guy. But yeah. Yet, yeah. And I, I, I think that's something that many movies are are often trying to do they want to sympathize villains they want to let us sympathize with villains and and see the other side of the story I'm looking at you disney <laughs> um but but here i sort of like that we're never encouraged to sympathize with him fully like we understand no. some of his motivations but still he's awful and he plays a really great awful person in a very different from loki way yes hiddleston at this point was i think choosing projects 
to get him away from Loki, from the the scheming, you know, snarking villain, right? He wanted something with more heart. And, and fortunately, Hiddleston is one of the few people that's played a Marvel villain that has not sort of not gone anywhere kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to say that Marvel, you know, the people who played Marvel villains become untouchable, not at all. But, you know, a lot of those roles don't manifest into a lot more success and work. Um, but that's, that's not the case for him. And I think that's, that's very careful on his part. Like he is, is trying to, to be that. And honestly, in the hands of a, of a less capable director, he could have been played that way. You know that, but Del Toro wants you to at least see this, that there is some positive in Thomas, right? Chastain is the villain. She is, she is the true evil of this. Um, and, and I think that becomes somewhat clear at the end, but he is certainly culpable. Like he is, he's part of the problem. We can't pretend like he's not. Um, so the, the middle section is we also, we flash back to America. We see Charlie Hunnam's character, Alan, I think something. Um, he <laughs> is suspicious of this whole thing. He was from the start. He definitely is now. So he employs like a private investigator or something to to you know find out more about the Sharps. And he's the one who actually discovers, oh, these, this guy's been married a bunch of times to women in very similar situations to Edith. And that his sister is uh, or, or spent time in a, a mental institution. Um, which, again, by a modern standpoint, spending time in a mental institution shouldn't necessarily be a sign that you're a villain. At the time period in which this is set, it certainly would have been considered out of the norm. It, it, it would have been something like, oh, because the you know these were not facilities where people went to get help they were basically facilities where people were locked away to die and um and so they're you know he's the one who does most of that in investigating i guess and it parallels fairly nicely i mean the the interwoven scenes between what alan is discovering and what uh, edith is discovering you know in the mansion itself are are kind of nicely pointed so that we really when the final reveal is made, I guess, you know, it, it, it all kind of comes together. Well, um, so I, I guess really we get the next scene with her. She wakes up again in the middle of the night. Now she's bleeding. She's coughing up blood in her sleep. So she has blood on her pillow and all over her face, which I do. I love the way she looks in that. Cause she's in the one of these, like, the nightgown that they have her in is just ridiculous. I know that it's like buttoned up to the the chin. It must weigh twenty pounds. I it's just no, enormous. I, I have no idea. It's it's gorgeous and it gives all of these wonderful silhouettes. Like you can tell, he was really just going for shapes. But it's just so much fabric. It's it's so incredible. Um, but so she goes exploring again. She goes to the bathtub, the one that she was in prior, and and there is yet another you know, bloody woman, this one with a, a meat cleaver in her head, I think. That's the, the third ghost. Yes, have, yes. She has some sort of cleaver something in her head. And, the, you know, it's neat. You know, the effect is really cool. With the, It's like that smoky blood that's kind of floating up from the wound. It's 
good. Yeah, it's 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 very unsettling, very interesting. Um and I, I don't know, most of the ghost stuff works here, but again, they're they're not they're disturbing. I, I I don't know if people would consider them horrifying, but they're they're certainly effective at conveying that something is wrong. And so I do like, you know, there were some reviews that I read that felt that Edith was just so divorced from action in, in this you know section of the film, right? She's, she's impotent. Basically she can't do anything. And, and I wanted to ask you how you felt about that, right? Cause it, it is a choice, right? I mean, at, at some point Edith, I mean, should she run? Should she fight back? You know, the the trapped woman trope in literature of this ilk, right, is is pretty common, right? I mean, the 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 whole idea of the isolated mansion and on the moor in the middle of nowhere, and you're just sort of stuck there is is a, a pretty defining feature of of gothic literature in general. And so the fact that this movie plays with it, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but there were a lot of people who reacted negatively to the fact that she just doesn't know about it there. Um, but I, I didn't see it as that big of a problem myself. I don't know, what it, yeah. Um, maybe I just don't need my movies to be that way. I don't know. That didn't, that didn't bother me at all. Yeah, I aside from just the just the the you don't get horror movies if the people leave. Like you just it doesn't yeah. happen. Like you don't get movies where scary things are happening. Because absolutely it's away. it's wonderful to sit and, and think self superior thoughts that, you know, well I wouldn't do that. If I were in the bloody clay house, I would just leave. And yeah, that's that's sort of the point is you look at the character in the movie and you think you're an idiot. I would have done this differently. That's part of why they make those maddening choices is so that the audience can can engage with the character and think about how they would have done it if they were in their shoes. That's that's how movies do things, you know, like perspective. I don't know. I, uh, I guess that's just getting into to what people expect out of movies in general. And I guess I just don't expect that. I don't need that. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I didn't have an issue with it either. I mean, it, it's, it's so sort of intrinsic to the nature of this storytelling that if, if, you know, if, if the character said, Hey, I'm actually like a, you know, super wealthy. Well, at this point she's, I guess she hasn't fully signed over the company and the money yet. I guess that's one of the things they still need her to do before she dies. Um, you know, she, she could just F off back to America. Like I'm, I'm done here. Like we're out. But again, you know, it's, it's sort of something that you kind of have to accept. In a I don't this type, I guess. I don't not believe why she, she doesn't stay. I mean, she seems it's again, maybe I read it wrong, but I got the impression from her, her ability to see spirits and her dabbling in writing and her searching for, you know, some greater adventure. I took that as the, the reason that she endures more than she has to is that she, she'd like to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that that kind of curiosity was pretty standard in in your your 
if we're going to go with the horror thing in in horror movie characters because they have to they have to be a little bit curious otherwise yeah they would leave immediately they have to be the kind of person who's drawn into the mystery rather than chased off by it yeah and and i think that wasikowski or wasikowski's uh, innate <laughs> curiosity is um is is sort of central to the character right she's yeah and I think the other component that we can't forget about is that she seems to legitimately love Thomas, right? He has sold her on that building. Well, he's really hot. Effectively. <laughs> which She really, really is, doesn't want to give up her chance with this hot guy. Yeah. And and so they finally do get to be together. They go to pick up the mail. Isn't that it? They have to come down from Allendale yes. Hall to pick up the mail. And then there's a storm. There's a storm coming, right? It's a nor'easter. Uh, and and they get stuck there. So the sister is not not the able to stop them interrupt. with tea time. Yeah, and so they actually do get to have sex, and and it's it's very horny. We get a lot of Hiddleston butt. So if you are it's interested, in almost that, entirely centric on his on his. There is a lot of Hiddleston ass in that scene. Um, a little something for the ladies. <laughs> hey, Del Toro knows what people want. I uh, mean, at and really. At the time, you could not get more popular than Tom Hiddleston. So this really no. was delivering on what people wanted yeah. to see. Yeah, like all those folks out there who were pining for Loki, they got <laughs> plenty of that. Plenty. Exactly. And and so they get to be together and they do have this moment of of what seems to be legitimate connection, right? They they're finally feeling like a couple. And when they return to the home, you know, the sister is like obviously like, what did you do? I know what you uh, I know what you did at the mail at the mail place. <laughs> I know what happens at the post office. I know what you did at the post office yesterday. Um, and and so now we're getting interspersed because there is a letter waiting for Ms. E. Sharp from Italy, and she's like, I don't know anybody in Italy, but of course we we know that there was another E. Sharp, Enola Sharp, that uh, was one of the previous women um, that the the Sharps had done this to, and so. Now the the mystery begins to unspool, and I'll be honest. I mean, crafting a mystery of this type is is incredibly complicated because you do have you do have to spool the information out very very deliberately, without or else you just spoil everything. And then you what's the drive to watch the rest, right? And and that's that's challenging. So um hunnam's character at this point is going on a little a little search to investigate the sharps to to satisfy his own curiosity about them and he enlists uh burn gorman my gosh i just enjoy burn gorman he's a wonderful actor so interesting visually he has just such an iconic face such an iconic presence uh of course he was he was also in pacific rim which again i've said is, is my jam um but he plays a private investigator who goes out and does some additional research into the sharps and discovers that there was uh, that their parents died under terrifying circumstances and that the brother and sister were left alone, heavily implied that the sister was the one who did the murdering of her own Which parents. Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so I like the setting of this because it's, it's reasonable to assume that you know, if you don't have access to newspapers from the other side of the world, people could theoretically sort of show up and you would you would have no idea that this was the history of it. You know, this this is impossible now. It's impossible to really post 1940, 
it would be impossible to to do something like this. But in this time frame, you could theoretically hide this much of your past. Um, now, why they wouldn't have just completely changed their names and everything to f to further obscure it, I don't know. But you know, maybe there's you know there's there's family legacy to consider something. And it does kind of seem like they they genuinely might care about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the family name. The family name, yeah. But you know, the the real thing that we discover is is you know he's been married multiple times. The women have all died under mysterious circumstances. People die at Allerdale Hall all the time. And you know, it it just continues to to sort of compound that you know things are are very very wrong. So when they return to Allerdale Hall, everything seems to be okay, but um, you know, Chastain is, is furious with uh, them being left alone to their own devices for an evening. And and she continues to, you know, I guess we want to talk about costuming with her, where Edith's outfits grow more sort of over the top and preposterous. Hers gets get more and more severe, tighter, more restrictive. Um, you know the the flares at the uh, the flares at the hands and arms. Like it's it, I don't know. It, it's an interesting parallel between the two of them. She also has all of these. There's stuff that just creep like they that creep up her dresses. I don't know. Did you mm -hmm. notice that? Like she always has like a vine or a flower or something that sort of like goes up something all the way from the bottom that loops around. It's she looks a bit threatening and a bit poisonous and, and prickly. I mean, very straight lines. Very, um, you know, she has ruffles. They're often like tightly you know, kept to her body. Like I'm thinking of the blue green dress that she has. Um, with all of the ruffles at the bottom and just mm -hmm. how, how great that was. I want to dress like these people. Yeah. They're, they're just really cool. I mean, they, they do it. They do a great deal to, why don't I own more velvet gowns? What's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. We live in a world where velvet gowns just should be the norm and they aren't. Yeah. Um, so I, I do love the scene when they get back and, and, um, she realized the Jessica Chastain's character realizes that they've slept together and she has like that pot cooking. She has like a pot cooking on the uh, oven and she picks it up and then just like slams it down on the table and food goes yeah. everywhere. And um, it's, it, it's, it's good. Like I said, Jessica Chastain made everybody's doing a really good job in this film, but she is just killing it. And I this guess it looks like it was a fun movie to be in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think everybody's having a good time. And and that's one thing about Jessica Chastain in general that I have to to say is that Jessica Chastain has made some dumb. I mean, Jessica Chastain was in X Men: The Dark Phoenix, um, yeah. and that movie is a giant hunk of human garbage. Uh, hey. And <laughs> and she Poor still worked so hard in that movie and did such a great job. It's a uh, it 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 was it was really good. I mean, she's just great in it. She's great in all of it, and she's obviously having fun being this sort of classical villain uh, in this this film. And I, I I don't know. I 
it's it's worth noting that she is a reason to watch. Some of the reviews that I read really felt that Lucille was the more interesting main character, which, yes, obviously. I mean, the villains in films like this are generally more interesting than the heroes, but that doesn't mean that you can build a movie around them. Yeah, it doesn't right? mean that they should be a main character. It just means it's a really good villain. Yes, and I don't know. It's just a just a very strange thing. Uh, the imagery of the the seeping mud slash blood continues to expand over the film too. Uh, it does eventually start to snow heavily, and and they introduce the visual idea that when someone steps in the snow and leaves a footprint behind, the the mud sort of seeps up through the snow, and so you get these bloody footprints everywhere. And it's obviously Del Toro sort of playing with the idea that you know the mansion is cursed, that blood has been spilled, that blood will always call the blood. You know, it's it's all of these sort of classic horror movie ideas. And it's it's just it's great. It's it's a bit on the nose, I guess. Sure, but it's such an interesting visual. And by the end of the film, obviously, it 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 sort of goes to the nth degree, and, and there's just you know this blood everywhere. Um, so the investigation continues. She events, uh, she steals a key off of uh, Lucille's key ring, which was shown earlier. I did find that being... funny. It was one of those moments where it's like anyone would notice. You would have heard her jangling yeah, that gigantic key ring. And I love how she's just like completely sneaking around getting that giant key off there without letting Jessica Chastain know. It's great. Yeah, it's it's so good. Um but here's where the where things do, in my opinion, if they're not horrific, they do get legitimately creepy. So one of the features of the basement where she finds the trunk and then eventually unlocks it is uh, there are these these giant like tubs down there that just have the red uh, goo. I don't, I don't know what to call it, but whatever they're attempting to make. Um, or or use this red stuff for they've got some repositories of it down there and so she um she opens up one of them and and is sort of fishing around in there doesn't find anything and then of course you know as she walks away the a body you know comes up out of it and you know it's very creepy i I question the choice of always having the main character walk away before the creepy thing happens. I mean, again, in, in a film like this, I guess it makes sense. You, you certainly, if she saw the body, then the, the jig is actually up like it's <laughs> 100% up. So she would just be, you know, be gone at that point. So I get it, but it, it certainly does sort of keep the, the horror on the down tempo side of things. Um, a, a little bit longer. more than it should be. Yeah. Cause at this point I think we know, like we get it. Like something's wrong here. Like we can, we can advance this. We don't have to keep pretending like everything is actually fine. Um, I also love that the, the red stuff being everywhere is, uh, becomes a problem because it, le it stains everything. And so like whenever, Edith is running around doing her investigation. She gets red stuff all over her clothes and then she has to hide it because, you know, it's like, obviously I've been, obviously I've been out exploring because <laughs> my, my whole outfit is covered in red stuff. Uh, you know, I like that that becomes a, a sort of complicating problem as well. 
but you know, it's tense. It's good. Um, really not much else happens until the, the big reveal that the brother and sister are, are in an incestuous relationship. Like that's, that's the last moment. Um, I guess she actually sees it, right? Yeah. She's out again. She's exploring at night. She could, she stumbles across them in, in the throes of passion. Doing it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Being brosis horny. Um, and, uh, and it's, and it is appropriately creepy. Like you're, you're grossed out as mm -hmm. you should be. Um, but it's, I can see how this would be off-putting to people who just, I don't know, I get the feeling that this comes back to people not wanting to see Loki do this. <laughs> don't want to see Loki do these things. This is bad. Um, but it does provide a great, it does provide a great contrast, because now that the jig is up, Chastain, her visual presentation completely changes. Right where she's restrained and and closed off and everything before now she's in this nightdress that is basically sheer. Um, yeah, and sure, her hair is loose, her hair's and down, crazy and wild. Right, so it's it's really this idea that the world that that Edith has been shown has, has been this, you know, facade, something that's been dressed up for her benefit. But now this is reality. This is this is the truth. Um, and it's. Uh, you know, incredibly well done. I, I do love the scene where uh, she pushes her off the balcony. That's a really, really well executed stunt sequence. When she hits the back, she she hits the railing on her back. I was like, yeah. damn. Um, wh- whatever stunt person did that, like, bravo. Because that, I do not, I do not see a universe where you could stage that and not be just in tremendous pain. Um, it just is really, really good stunt. And, uh, and, you know, sort of, again, I, I like that Del Toro is constantly looking for somewhat thematically appropriate ways for these characters to be injured, right? She could have stabbed her. She could have, you know, beat her or something, but for her to fall, right. To, to quite literally like be tossed off, the top rung or the you know the top level and then she lands in that that patch of snow from the hole Mm -hmm. it's just that follow through is great yeah i mean it saves her life the the blood begins to seep up and and sort of surround her in those cool patterns it's and it's it it also sort of visually represents the the internal collapse of her realization like now that she knows the truth she has fallen right and it's it's just a it's a it's a great it's a really appropriate way for her to have this happen. And the, an issue I had when I first watched it was the timing of Alan's appearance. I really didn't because like, okay, so the, 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 the sequence goes, she falls, she lands in the snow, she's laying there. Hiddleston and Chastain are staring down at her. You know, Chastain is like laughing maniacally or whatever it is she's doing whatever scenery chewing is taking place. <laughs> and then like we cut then to the, the Del Toro doesn't do a ton of like weird edits in this movie. Like there's not a lot of weird sort of strange editing technique. It's, it's very, it's very traditional. 
for the vast majority of its runtime. But then we get like the pinhole, you know, focal point, and then that expands out on her face as she's waking up, and Alan is just there. So I, I really had an issue, and I shouldn't have because it's it doesn't matter. It's, it really doesn't. But it's a choice that would imply that before Chastain could come down and and finish her off, I guess. Alan showed up at the door. Presumably discovered her in the state of having fallen and then, you know, began the process of trying to nurse her to health. Just Just in time. The whole timing of this and like why they didn't just kill her. I mean, I guess they still need her to sign over the money or I I don't know. I don't remember the specifics of why they can't just finish her off. You know, we had more scenes with Charlie Hunnam that were sort of interspersed of him trying to get to her so it's not entirely unexpected that he shows up um but it is kind of a sudden transition to his arrival i guess yeah i would have and i'm not saying that i have to have the that i have to have the you know i'm i'm you know knocking at the door oh hello it's me charlie hunnam i'm here again you know like i don't i'm not necessarily saying i need that but it, it just it's very strange that she wakes up and he's just there and it leads to some nice drama, I, I guess, because, you know, they didn't just kill him immediately at the door, even though they presumably could have and gotten away with it. Um, but she tries to, to take her away and, and then we get another, again, I guess, legitimately gross moment. Where she, she stabs him under the arm. Uh, and you know, I'm not a, I'm not an expert stab guy, right? I, I don't, I don't know what stabs are real bad versus stabs that aren't. I know if you, I know movies have told me that if you get stabbed in the stomach, you're probably fine. Uh, if you get stabbed in the shoulder, you're probably okay. But she, uh, she stabs him under the arm, and it's real gross. It just looks bad. Yeah. It just looks super painful and not good. And there are probably like very important you know, like arteries and blood vessels there that you wouldn't want to stab, (laughs) but he does. And then Hiddleston stabs him. And I do like this scene. This scene was great. Like Hiddleston approaches to finish him off. Right. Cause of course, Chastain's demanding it. He's it's lovely and framed in the door frame. Right. Which mm, I mean, I've seen La Ventura. I know what door frames in movies represent, (laughs) but he's framed in the door. And he can tell, like, Alan can tell that Hiddleston doesn't want to kill him, right? He's like, I know you don't want this. And so he, like, shifts the knife over to a spot on his stomach where he knows it's not fatal. And he's like, this is fine. Because I guess that's the other thing Alan said. Isn't he, like, an optometrist, though? <laughs> he's, kind of, he's, he's not, like, a regular, like, medical practitioner, but whatever. So he stabs him in a spot that he, he he's like, this this won't kill me kind of thing. And so they're able to... To, to sort of orchestrate that. And then Hiddleston comes back in and he's just framed in that doorway. And it's such a good shot, dude. Um, yeah. You can tell that Del Toro had a very clear idea in his mind of how he wanted the last, you know, sections of this film to go. And so I, I guess then it's the signing over of the money, which they haven't done. So that's why they couldn't kill her. So that, that all works again. I, it's just the timing of everything is a little weird, but, but they need her to sign over her family fortune before they can, can fully kill her which is what they've done with all the other 
you know, women that uh, the Sharps have murdered. And then I guess the last, the last like big, big reveal is that it was Lucille that killed her dad, which again, I don't think is that big of a reveal in terms of the movie. It's like, well, of course, but that's what sort of finally drives Edith to, to start fighting back. Right. That's where she finally says, that's where she finally says, okay, well enough's enough. And And she she stabs her in the heart with a pen, which is good. Um, nice and, and symbolic the way we like it. That's right. There's some good sim- symbolism there. Uh, the pen is mightier than the sword. But. But yeah, like quite literally sort of rewriting her heart kind of thing. There's, there's some interesting stuff there. We do get a lot more with uh, butterflies and. Um, you know, which she had talked about before and, and the way that they morph and cocoon and. You know, so again, some some nice metaphor. And I don't know, what are your thoughts on this this sort of final sequence? Because I'll admit Del Toro can be shaky in terms of endings. Not always. Uh, most of the time it, 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 it comes together pretty well. But people did not care for the ending of this film. They did not like how it and even when I left the theater the first time, I was not tremendously satisfied. So, so where where are you at with it before we sort of talk about the final final setups? Well, again, I don't really come into his movies hoping that they'll go a certain way, and I think it's because I I learned that that's just not a good idea. Um, and I think it was around the time I went back and watched Kronos and like the devil's backbone that I was like, this guy, I'm again, I, I'll be entertained, but it's sometimes at the cost of not under, always understanding exactly why a film plays out the way that it does. So I can see why people would be a little bit shaky on this ending. I really can. Yeah. But. I'm not sure what they expected. <laughs> like, if you've been watching the movie, I don't know what could have happened. Like, what what should happen instead? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the our our heroine is going to survive, right? I mean, like this yeah. movie is 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 not breaking any molds in that regard. You know, she, when it lets us know at the start that you know she does survive this because right. it ends where it begins. Yeah. I mean, like she she is our opening narrator who says, I wish I'd known or if I'd paid attention to the ghost and things would have worked out differently. Like we, we know. Um, so it's it's not surprising. But so the the final set of sequences, uh, Chastain realizes that she's kind of lost her brother's affection. And, and so that drives her to murder him. So she kills Hiddleston's character. Um after he makes a, a really compelling plea, and I, I think this would, I mean, there are a lot of really good scenes with Hiddleston in this film, but I think that one in particular is good, where he says, basically, let's let's let the sharp name die. Like, let's just leave. Let's get out of here. Forget the mines. Forget the red, bloody dirt stuff. Like, let's just let's just ditch. Like, what what's what's keeping us here? Let's just go, and we'll be together. We'll forget about all that stuff. And she's like, oh, never, and and you know, kills him. And, you know, so then we get a, a bit of a chase through the the mansion, which I will say is 
is a really big shift for this film. Everything in this movie is is super locked off, right? There's not a lot of like camera camera kinetic camera work, right? There's not a lot of like pushing and running and moving. And then at the end, everything kind of gets ramped up. Everything does get sort of hyped and, and we get a lot more and camera motion. The characters are thankfully it's fairly brief. I like that it's not it's not overly long, you know, sections of action and movement. And it is sort of, you know, broken up by those nice shots of of the house and the sets mm-hmm. themselves. Because there is that great moment when when Edith chases her down to the basement and there's there's all of that great light coming in through the the ceiling and uh i don't know it just it looks great but it's in between i mean they do have to get them from place to place in the house so it's a little awkward in in picking up this action pacing there at the end yeah yeah very much so and and down in the basement is where it's revealed because they they had i guess we'd seen in one of the news articles that the parents had been killed with this very specific kind of cleaver um, who's one of the ghosts, right? The ghost in the bathtub is, is the mother, I believe. Um, and we see that she's hidden it down there and she you know, picks up her, her preferred weapon of choice for the, the final confrontation. And, and just the color is so rich. I mean, the movie's called Crimson Peak, so red is not a surprise. But it's 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 so well done. And everybody's bloody at this point. Like, everybody's got just the deepest, reddest blood all over them at at this point in the film and and then when that gets contrasted with the white of the snowstorm uh at the end it's it's just such a it's such an effect, effective visual right like again one of the things about del toro is these distinctive visuals that will stick in your head and yeah. and you will just never forget them that that white that red on white you know the the Beautiful. mud in the it's it's gorgeous in some ways i think that it did you know because you know the, the last jedi does basically the same thing on on crate of having you know the white perfect and then as people go over it it gets red underneath it's such a striking visual and it's so interesting and and in this film's case i bet ridiculously difficult to pull off in in star wars is you know just computers um, so whatever, but in, in this one, I, I feel it, it, the practical nature of the set and it's, it's just so effective because we also have the, the compounding issue that, you know, Edith as our hair, as our heroine here, you know, she's in this white nightgown again, that is just so over the top. And so she's stark against the background and her dress is absorbing the, you know, the blood is, is being sort of pulled up onto it. It's just it's designed to the nth degree and it looks so incredible. And and I guarantee like you've you've never seen anything quite like it. And and that is just impressive. Um I, I should we talk about the uh the I I'll just grab your knife scene. <laughs> <laughs> um uh again, people malign this movie for being gross. I think it might be this one that did it. Um you know, movies have given us many scenes where characters grab a sword or a knife with their hand because the person that's trying to kill them won't expect that. And but this one is just so gross because she grabs it and then just slides it down the knife and you just see the really deep, deep red blood, you know, just sort of like seeping out of the wound. Um, really good. Just, just great. 
a nice, nice little. Nothing, nothing <laughs> so excessive that I feel like I have to look away. You know, yeah, it's no. it's a it's a a gasp. You know, ooh, that's nasty. But it's it's never it's never too excessive, which I'm thankful for. I don't actually love when things are excessively gross. Yeah, there's uh, if you've seen Spiral uh, colon from the Book of Saw yet, I'm I'm gonna assume not, and I'm not gonna tell you. Um, and I won't. Yeah, and I won't. Uh, I told you, Twisty Bones was it for me. I'm done. <laughs> but Twisty Bones is just the start. Uh, I saw everything those movies had to offer. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... There is a scene in that movie... Uh, again, no, they have not gotten the entire concept of Jigsaw and, and, and his, his torture setups right since the first one. Because the whole idea is like you, you could get out of it if you're willing to sacrifice this, this thing, right? Like, Oh, you, you have to, you know, do this to escape. And if, if you do, then you'll learn your lesson, right? Cause it's all about teaching lessons. Jigsaw is really just a frustrated high school teacher. He's like, I just want you to learn your lesson. Um, but there is a scene in that movie where a guy is, he is in a bath, like a, like a water bath that has electrodes in it. So he's going to be electrocuted. <laughs> That's going to happen. And the only way for him to get out is to, he has to close his jaw. And when he closes his jaw, that causes a motor to, to fire. Yeah, a motor to fire. And then the motor rips his fingers off. <sighs> Not cuts them off, right? Which if you're trying to tell somebody, hey, y'all, hey, man, you got sticky fingers. You need to cut that shit out. You can just cut them off but the fingers actually have to be physically individually separated from the knuckle by pulling. I don't get it. I just, and I mean, and yeah, I just don't, I don't get it. And it's, it's so cringy and it's, it's what you're talking about, right? It's like the, I'm, I just need to look away for a moment. kind of thing. Yeah. Like I, I can't, I can't physically watch this anymore. Yeah. Um. And Crimson Peak is it does not do that. And I feel like any allegations of this movie being too much or too gross are just stupid. You know, in the light of the kinds of movies that we we extol as being now, you know, cornerstones of horror, mm -hmm. I feel like this movie is not even a drop in the bucket. No. And and if you come to it looking for that, I think you'll be disappointed because there's just not enough yeah. of it, and that's not the point. Um. But yeah, it's just, it's, Spiral was such a. Bad. That sounds bad. It's, it's, I think we can both agree that good. that's a bad movie yeah, and it's good. bad. I just didn't know what it was doing and what it was trying to accomplish. Um, it seemed like two movies. One was like a fairly okay detective story where Chris Rock is angry about things and is trying to solve a mystery. And then there were just three scenes in it where people were killed in really stupid, terrible ways. Like that was kind of it. And. All right. Okay. Um, but yeah, like it's nothing, nothing in this movie is going to give you that. So the, the ending is, you know, this this conflict. It's beautiful, snowy. It's by whatever mining machine Thomas has attempted to make. Cause that's, that's another kind of cool thing about it. He's like a, he's like an engineer of some kind, but he makes toys. <laughs> so there's like a lovely little scene kind. earlier where he, you know, has made like these little figures that like move a ball from one thing to another or something. And, 
so like he has this this these abilities he's got some some talent but it's all in service of mining this red stuff that's just slowly consuming everything you know blood. you're meant to get the impression that if he had not had this terrible experience in this and his sister that maybe his life would have been different yeah he becomes more sympathetic in those last moments um and so then but you're still happy to see him die he just he needs to die yes he can't survive this there's there's no coming back from what he's done um yeah. you know so he he has to die you know from a thematic standpoint for the film to kind of work but so he he does the thing they they're having a fight and and Wasikowska gets a shovel, which uh, again, it's great. I love shovels, uh, especially in the context they're about to be used. And she turns and she sees her brother's ghost, who is there's an there's a, a color component to the ghosts in this film, right? So the red ghosts seem to have been murdered in violent ways. The black ghosts seem to to have died, maybe under I'm not going to say normal circumstances, but you know maybe you know they're they're not they weren't killed violently in ways they didn't deserve, I guess. Cause we do get another little thing with that, but he was, he's a, a white ghost. So she turns and there's this great shot. She turns and, and he's standing there. He's all framed in white. He's right up against the machine that he's built and it's covered in snow. So we kind of see through and he looks like he's part of the machine. And, and it's enough of a distraction as Chastain sees him and, and has a legitimate emotion that when she realizes, Oh, I've, I've killed the person that I love, I guess. Um, and, and then that gives uh, Edith the opportunity to, to murder her with a shovel. <laughs> it's just crack her skull open like a, like a, a lovely little egg with a shovel, uh, which she does. And, and, and that kind of wraps things up. We get a little bit more voiceover narration. Alan survives because he you know, had Tom Hiddleston stab him in a place that wouldn't be immediately fatal. And, uh, the last shot of the film is, is sort of going back through the mansion, seeing the seeping blood again, and then into you know the the piano room or wherever we had seen uh, Jessica Chastain's character, and she's sitting there now, a, a black ghost sitting at the uh, piano, kind of waiting to play, and that's kind of the last scene of the film. So I mean, I, I, it doesn't end in an unsatisfactory way. I. I Again, the, the violence in this is very brutal and short, so I'm, I wasn't surprised that she just kind of died. That there wasn't, you know, much more to it. I, I think what people might have expected in a film like this was for the the ghosts to rise up and take her, or something to that effect. Yeah. That they would, you know, I'm tired of seeing punishment. that. You know, I think there would probably be some expectation of that, but again, that's not really how the ghosts function in this story and in this world. They don't interact yeah. physically. Like there's never a point where any of the ghosts have a physical interaction with another character. I, and I think that's intentional on El Toro's part that he wants the ghosts to, to be these representations, but you know, they're, they're not actually there. Right. So if for the yeah. ghost to come up and like, you know, do a drag me to hell kind of thing, I, I don't think that would have worked. And it, and it goes against, you know, sort of how people have died in this story, which had been through human action. All of the people who've died have been because people killed them, not because a supernatural force enacted some kind of unknown power on them. And I think that's a really, really intentional choice on Del Toro's part. Because if you look at Devil's Backbone, which is also a ghost story, it's very similar, right? The ghosts are present. They, they can offer information. They can direct. 
but they can't physically alter the landscape in any significant way that humans have to do that and and that feels like a a very you know specific choice that does line up a little bit with how mexican culture in general thinks about the dead and and how they interact with us um which of course you know is, is del toro's framework for understanding those things and so uh you know the film comes to a conclusion you know Jessica Chastain is now going to be alone forever, right? Because presumably Tom Hiddleston, when he evaporates, I, I assume that means that he's like passing on. I think that's what that's supposed to infer, is that he has, has moved. We don't see his ghost again. Right. So. Yeah, like he, I almost expected for a moment, because there's a long, slow, you know, sort of pull into the room, and then we, we zoom in on Chastain. I kind of expected him to show up behind her, or, or be, you know, sort of appear in the scene. But I think the intent is that she's now alone, right? The thing that she was perhaps most afraid of is now her punishment, whereas all of the other ghosts will have been able to depart because they've been, you know, their, their souls have been justified by the, the events. Um, so, yeah, it, it feels very, it's, it's not unsatisfying, but it's not bombastic, right? For a film that has been, you know, 90 minutes of, sort of creeping dread there's not really much of a there's not really much of a of a release right there's not a catharsis that comes out of this it just sort of stops and again i don't think that that's necessarily bad but i i can see how a general audience watching it might be like that was that wasn't enough for me to to sort of dispel all of these feelings that i've i've developed over the last Um, so, I mean, that's the film in general. I, I think it's, it's a careful film. It's very intentionally made. I think it's beautiful. Like just visually sumptuous from top to bottom. Like there's really no frame of this movie. That's not really interesting to look at. I think this would be one out of Del Toro's already impressive catalog. I mean, the man makes incredibly visually interesting films. This one probably has the most per capita of all of his movies though. Like every shot in this is really cool and has something going on and that makes it pretty special, uh, which is not something that you can say about a filmmaker's movies. You know, a lot of the mechanics of making a film are about filming very straightforward, boring things, you know, people riding in carriages, uh, people looking at pictures, right? Just, it's not visually exciting, but Del Toro has the ability consistently to make those things look visually and uh, and this is just wonderful for that, really, really. So I guess uh, we'll we'll move into our, our wrap up on Crimson Peak. I think uh, we were both pretty high on this film. I I, I feel, uh, and rightly so. Um, it's it's a bit unfortunate that it didn't find its audience because I certainly could do with more films that try to play in this in this genre to see more variety applied to it. Um, you know, I, I know there have been a few, uh, I think Oz Perkins, um, the, the son of Anthony Perkins, um, his version of like Hansel and Gretel does a little bit of this. Uh, obviously that's a very different story, different setting. It's not Gothic per se, although he, he has a very Gothic take on it, but I would love to see people try to take some more big swings like this. You know, the, the creepy old mansion movies, obviously there's a, a, a desire for it. I mean, 
Haunting of Hill House is, is certainly this, although in a more modern setting, you know, not actually Victorian era, but it's certainly evocative of those Gothic pieces. Um, so, I mean, I, I again, it's kind of like what we were saying about, about Del Toro earlier is that he does the thing first and then everybody else does the thing and they get the success, more success. Yeah. but he, he does the thing first. Right. So I feel like this is, this is a, a genre that is being explored. I think that we've seen since 2015, you know, a lot of big things happen in horror, you know, namely what we've been talking about, which is the haunting of Hill house, the TV show, mm-hmm. um, which Clearly, visually, it's borrowing from Del Toro's ghosts. You know, if you look at the ghosts in that series, sure. it's it's lifting from directors like Del Toro, and, and I think from him specifically. So again, I feel like this is a, a another case of him being a trendsetter. Yeah, no, I I think so, uh, and I I think that's why Del Toro will continue to be an important filmmaker. Is that he's the guy that's exploring these things. And gets other directors excited about it. He's a director that other directors get excited to see his work. And then once they see it, they themselves become inspired to go and do something on their own that may sometimes, find more success. But sometimes I think a lot of the general public maybe doesn't know how to handle a Del Toro film. Oh, for sure. I think he's had those those really big successes with things like Hellboy. But for the most part, you know. Unless it's unless it's Pan's Labyrinth, unless it's Hellboy, um, I've seen more people struggle with his work, where they're like, "I just don't get it," or "I don't know why that happened," or "Why is it like this?" Um, and I think that's why. I think it's just that he's 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 not as approachable in his in his designs always. But boy, they're they're trend setting. They they establish a look, and then everybody kind of follows suit. Yeah. No. Agreed. Um, you know, Shape of Water was a massive box office success relative to its budget. It made about. But I even look at that times. now and I'm like, how did that happen? <laughs> I think, you know, word of mouth, I think word of mouth, I think it had at, at its heart. This movie lacks the love story because people can always get behind a love story. But the love story in this one is flawed by design and doesn't really play. And as a result, I, I think without that. People are scared of it. That, without that positive emotion at the core of it, I think it's harder for people to engage with. And, and Shape of Water is not a frightening film. There's nothing frightening about it. Um, and, and there is a serious case of villain getting what they deserve at the end, like which, you know, people, people respond to. And, and there's mm-hmm. there's not necessarily that here. I mean, she she dies, so I mean, she gets what she deserves in terms of people. Don't get me wrong, but, but it's very unceremonious. There's no right. long drawn out scene where nope. she gets her just desserts. She, She's just beaten with a shovel. She just and gets done. beaten with a shovel to death, and and it's over. You know, there's there's no. I I kind of thought I remember having this flash in the theater, and I think even when I rewatched on Netflix this time, that she could have just pushed her into that wheel on the the machine because the machine's on and going behind her right like the whatever digging machine he has and i was like but that wouldn't have been as surprising no no that would have been what we expected and i i like that we don't ever really get what we expect in his movies that's why i just stopped expecting things and it would have been gross because that would have just torn her, yeah. torn her limb from limb and i yeah I, 
that would have been a saw moment and we just don't need that in this movie right. no twisty bones no twisty bones in the del toro film unless it's earned um <sighs> yeah I, I agree i'm not saying that i would have wanted it but i, I can certainly see why people uh, you know maybe didn't didn't find it as satisfying as possible so uh, all right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap up on Crimson Peak. I think uh, I, I can speak for both of us in saying that this is a definite recommend. This is a film that I think everybody should see at least once. Uh, again, every Del Toro film falls into that category. You should see all of his movies. Yeah, like at, at this point, if you are unfamiliar with Guillermo Del Toro, uh, look him up on IMDb or Wikipedia, whichever you know juices your your, uh, your oranges, whatever that may be, and uh, and just go through his entire filmography. Watch them all. Uh, because most of them were successful. Most of them did have tremendous positive response. Although some of, you know, Mimic and Blade 2 and, you know, there's there's some weakness there. They're but, fun movies. But they're, they're movies that I sort of all love unequivocally because they are crafted yeah. with love. That is the one yeah. universal thing of Del Toro's films is that they are crafted with genuine care. Um, and not just the care of a craftsman. Right, a person who knows how to direct films and assemble films that are palatable and watchable and enjoyable, but someone who legitimately loves the thing that he is filming. Like he is in yeah. love with it. And you can feel that in his films. And that is rare. Um, you know, for me, it's the difference between, you know, it's it's like watching a Stanley Kubrick film, which I, I'm not one of the people that says like Kubrick is just cold and emotionless. I think. I think his films are full of emotion. I think they're bursting with emotion. You you can't watch something like Eyes Wide Shut, which granted is, is a problematic film for other reasons, but that film is full of emotion, but it's all about trying to control you it. You're not going to like any of those emotions. No, no, <laughs> not the emotions you want to be experiencing. Whereas Del Toro, there's this fundament of, of positive. I'm like, well, actually, I guess I shouldn't say positivity, but I kind of feel like positivity. Like he, he's enjoying he is, himself. And you can he feel is a it. great filmmaker because he loves making movies and he loves movies. Yeah. Period. Like he just loves them. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's definitely true. So if there was one thing that could have made Crimson Peak more palatable to, to those, those sundry masses, right? To those individuals out there who were just looking for a good time on a Sunday afternoon. What would it have been? What might have pushed this over the edge into a a breakout success? I will be bold in saying that I think it probably could have done without the incest plotline. I think mm -hmm. it could have continued to hint. Sure. And it could have let us infer that uh, Lucille was in love with her brother. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it would have made us a little more comfortable with the film's resolution, especially where Hiddleston's character is concerned. Yes. If he had not been willingly engaged in this relationship with her, if it had been a bit more one-sided. Sure. Like she was um, pining for him and then they had just basically hatched yeah, and, schemes and, to, to get these women here just for their money. Like it was purely. And like maybe, you know, plot. maybe we see again, you know, he, him rebuking her advances and that this is just a thing with them that she, this is what she wants and it's not what he wants. You know, they could have done something even a little bit different like that. But I think that would have changed the audience response just enough yeah. um, that more people would have enjoyed the movie. Because 
that's just such a difficult plot piece to sell to an audience and have them not be just immediately uncomfortable and immediately put off yeah, it, it, by your movie. Yeah, it, it changes the entire shape of the story once that comes into focus. Um, and it, it, it goes from being like, oh, that's, that's creepy to, oh, that's creepy. And, and yeah, and it, and it really, it, it taints the Hiddleston character so irreversibly that his death seems inevitable rather than tragic. And I think that it needed a bit more of tragedy to it so that we could feel it. Um, because at the end, it's like, you know, it's not that Edith is upset that these people are dead, but I think it would have maybe had some more emotional resonance for her to at least be somewhat sad that he had been killed. But, you know, I don't think that's possible. But as it stands, it's just so gross that it's Mm -hmm. like, well, good riddance. You're both nasty. (laughs) This is really kind of what you deserve, which, you know, that's a difficult line to walk because your villains should get what they deserve. But when you've spent two hours trying to convince me that Tom Hiddleston is like attractive and desirable and, uh, you know, I love him, and then he, you know, it's none of those. That that's hard, right? But I, I think, given the theme of the story and given the ideas that he's working with, it's it, it works. But it's it certainly kind of sort of pushes in some weird places. Um, mine had to do with the ghosts. Uh, I think that it, I think audiences would have been more satisfied by this film if the ghosts had been a larger component of it. I think they were sold a bill of goods about this, this film and its relationship to the supernatural by the marketing department, which is not necessarily something that del Toro can control. So I'm not hanging this on him necessarily, probably more the studio, but I think that this film could have at least satisfied some of the people probably drawn in by that marketing with a bit more of a bit more ghost stuff happening. Um, You know, Hill house is, you know, talked about it a bunch already with this episode but one of the things that it did super well is just hiding the ghosts everywhere right they're just everywhere some even something like that where literally every time the camera moves like there's one of them just standing there or or you know off in the distance was it that was it not i think it would have done a bit more to keep the tension level which i mean the general tension level of this film is quite high for the last half but having the ghosts be a more constant presence would have been interesting and I think maybe a few more scenes of the ghosts being directive towards the end, which they are. They're sort of they keep pushing her into areas where she can discover key pieces of information. But I think they're, they're very much uninvolved. Yeah. And I think there's we needed a moment where both Edith realizes that the ghosts are attempting to help her. And so she listens to them like she actually follows and goes towards them. We kind of get that in the one with the mother with the cleaver in her head in the bathtub where she's trying to communicate something and she's not just immediately running away. But I think we needed more scenes of like the ghost pointing because we get the one dream sequence where the ghost is like out in the field and she's pointing at uh, the tree or something. And I think it's meant to mean that maybe one of the bodies is out there. I, I, I really don't know, but I think we needed more of like, Hey, like we're actually trying to give you a hand. Can you please pay attention so that you don't get, you know, freaking murdered uh, kind of thing? I can agree with that. I can agree with that. I see why why a filmmaker wouldn't want to, because that that is a horror trope. It is. But again, it's a trope for a reason. 
It's it's there because often audiences do need that. Yeah. Or they want they that. want it at the very least. Something to sort of tie those pieces together. And, um, and I think that that might have helped. But that was kind of what I thought, just to try and appeal to that audience a bit more directly. Um, just to make sure that they were leaving with the, you know, the, the types of ghosty scares that they might have expected based on you know the, the genre of film that they were sold in the marketing, which, you know, unfortunately, I think did do this film pretty significant disservice. But apart from those, I mean, I think this is this is a film that deserves to kind of continue to live on. I, I think there are, you know, films that Del Toro's done that really all of them, but even the lesser Del Toro is still miles above the, the, the common dreck that we get, you know, sort of churned out of Hollywood. Like bad Del Toro is is like a it's like saying bad Spielberg. It's like, okay, yeah, it's not great, but it's still really freaking good. I mean, even war of the worlds, which is what I would consider like the lowest low Spielberg is still an incredibly watchable, really mostly enjoyable film, you know, and, and this falls into that category too. Uh, all right. So I guess we'll, we'll wrap up any other final thoughts on crimson peak. I love Guillermo. Yeah, we may have He's to just best. do like a special, a Guillermo del Toro special, or just talk about all of his movies at once. Because they, again, they're so great. None of them are really failures, so they don't really fit in with our our specific milieu of trying to uncover these like you know forgotten gems kind of thing. But but often his work has a hard time finding a home. That's, tr- that's true. That's true. You know, his name gets attached to projects a lot, and then a lot of those projects don't happen. They don't materialize. Um. I think just because a lot of people don't really know the larger significance of his work yet. Yeah. He's he's still one that despite the fact that he's had tremendous success, I don't know if he's ever really truly broken through to you know, to to be a common sort of household name amongst moviegoers. I think amongst a certain a certain type of moviegoer for sure, <laughs> but I don't think he's the kind of guy that's going to be that, that is being spoken of in those, those terms for most people. Um, and that's, that's a shame given that at this point he's had an incredibly long and storied and surprisingly successful career making films that are not obviously marketable, easily successful films. And, you know, that in and of itself is a massive accomplishment. So, all right. Well, I guess we'll we'll wrap up on Crimson Peak. Uh, where can you be found if people would like to yell at you about the opinions expressed today? Um, please come yell at me, especially about Guillermo <laughs> del, Toro. del Toro. I hope it's excited yelling. Yeah. Um, yay. but if it's not, that's okay too. Yeah, it'll mostly just be me going, "Yay, he's the best." He's so good. Uh, but I I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter. Excellent. And I, of course, can be found at T Baskin on Twitter. You're welcome to give a follow if you are so inclined. Uh, I'll probably follow you back if that matters to you. I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm okay with social media transactions. That's cool. Um, but of course, you can find us at F Peace Theater on Twitter if you want to get us together or failurepeace at gmail.com. Uh, and of course, our podcast is hosted on Anchor, uh, which we uh, may be talking about more here in the future. We've sort of established ourselves, got a good rhythm to things. So we're, we're very happy with uh, Anchor, which is a, a Spotify service that we've been 
very pleased with. We are now listed on Apple iTunes, uh, which I thought we were, but apparently we weren't. But we are searchable on the iTunes store now, which is kind of cool. Um, and of course, any podcast service that uh, so suits your fancy. Uh, but we will be back next week to talk about another near miss from Hollywood's uh, list of, of failures, both box office and critical. And uh, we'll find another one to uh, talk about for a couple of hours. All right. See you next time. Bye bye. Thank you.